Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this year, when back to school can mean a variety of things, we celebrate teachers with Charles Lawton as a teacher in wartime on the Lux Radio Theater, Bob Bailey as George Valentine trying to protect a talented biology professor on Let George Do It, and, of course, Madison High's favorite English teacher and ours, our Miss Brooks. Plus, Gunsmoke, Dragnet, Will Rogers takes on income inequality, and there's a centennial tribute to Star Trek's Gene Roddenberry with a script he wrote for radio's Have Gun, Will Travel. So relax, settle back, don't think about the troubles of last week or worry about the next one. Instead, put your imagination to work here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. Last week, we heard Bob Bailey, just about everyone's favorite in the role of the man with the action-packed expense account. But at the end of 1960, Mr. Bailey chose not to move to New York with the show. And for the last several months here on the big broadcast, we've been hearing Bob Reddick play the part. But just when we'd gotten used to his voice and characterization... We have to say farewell to him. Tonight's episode is the last one starring Mr. Reddick, and it takes him down south for a case called The Stock in Trade Matter. It comes from June 11, 1961, CBS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Well, now, how are you, Johnny? This is Ripley Tita, Worldwide Mutual Insurance. Well, hi, Rip. How's dear old Memphis, Tennessee? <laughs> Finest town on God's green earth, Johnny. Always was, always will be. Well, now, when did you join the Chamber of Commerce? It what, sir? Say, isn't it just about time for your big annual celebration? Oh, you're too late, Johnny. Cotton Carnival's all over and done with for this year. Now, you should have called me sooner. Well, now, why, Johnny? These fine people here in Memphis never give us any trouble. Well, what are you calling about? Uh, well, uh, uh, trouble, Johnny. Real big trouble. I thought you just finished telling me. Yeah, I did, I did, Johnny. This little problem I'm calling about happens to be over in the nearby town of Somerville. Well, now make up your mind, Rip. What, sir? Which is it, a little problem or big trouble? Well, now, I suppose that kind of depends on just how you look at it, Johnny. Look at what? Murder. Murder? Yes, sir. Murder. CBS Radio brings you Bob Reddick in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Worldwide Mutual Insurance Company Memphis office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the stock in trade matter. 
It was bright and early in the day. I was able to make an immediate plane reservation, so expense account item one is $72.75, airfare to Memphis, Tennessee. And by shortly afternoon, we started circling for a landing over the big industrial city there on the eastern bank of Ole Miss. Soon as I cleared my baggage at the airport, I spent item two, six and a quarter, for a taxi into Ripley Tito's office on Union Street near 3rd. Taxi, Johnny? Now, why didn't you all just rent yourself a car at the airport? Well, sit down. Thanks. I'll have my secretary get one for you. Yes, sir? Maribel, honey, have one of those nice rental cars brought around front for Mr. Dollar, huh? What time? Right away. Thank you, honey. You uh, mentioned something about a town called Somerville. Yeah, about 40, 45 miles sort of east of him. What happened over there? Uh, like I told you on the telephone, Johnny, murder. And the deceased is a client of ours named Volney Beauregard Exum. That's a mouthful. Uh, that's three mighty fine old family names, Johnny. That figures. Yes, sir. Anyhow, uh, early this morning, uh, his housekeeper found him laying over his desk with his head bashed in. Have the police over there any theories, anything to go on? No, sir, not a thing. No fingerprints on that heavy hand iron that was used on him. No clues of any kind, nothing. So that's why I think maybe you ought to go over there and take a look around. How big a town is Somerville? Oh, less than a couple of thousand, I guess. I see. Now, that used to be the heart of some real important plantation country. That's where the extra money came from, Johnny, from cotton. But by the time it got down to Volney Beauregard, well, he was still living in the old plantation house, but most of the property around all been sold off. In other words, old Exum wasn't worth very much money. And I'm afraid that's true, Johnny. But he somehow managed to keep up the payments on his insurance. How much? Well, face value, 35000 Mm-hmm. I don't rightly know just where he got his living income from. Of course, after the war, when some of these fine old southern families had to sell off the land, they made some investments and things. You mean the Civil War rip? I said the war, didn't I? <laughs> Go on. Well, anyhow, I don't really know where he got his living money, except maybe from his kinfolk. Well, that brings up the question of beneficiary. Those very same kinfolk, Johnny, only ones he got left. Who are they? No wife or young uns of his own, so let's see here on his policy. Yeah. Uh, just a niece and a couple of nephews, Johnny. Now, let's see, uh, there's Clarabelle Otway Exum. You have her address there? Uh, let's see. Well, just let me uh, use this uh, scratch pad. I'll copy it into the policy. Yeah, go right ahead. And like you see, she lives right here in town. Works in a five and dime, I understand. And there's a nephew, also named of Volney Beauregard Exum. Lives down in Corpus Christi, Texas, yes, see? All right, I got it. Then there's other nephew named Culpepper Van Buren Oglethorpe right there in Somerville. Works at a real estate office. Although it beats me how he makes a living at it. Yeah, that's all, Johnny. Just those three. Okay. In other words, they're the only ones who will benefit by Exum's death, hmm? Well, now, that's right, Johnny, but surely you don't think one of them could have killed him. Why not? Fine old southern family like that. Did he have any enemies that you know about? 
fine old man like Volney Beauregard Exum. Did he have many friends? Well, uh, no. No, I guess he didn't, really. Kind of just kept to himself, living out his days down on the plantation house. All alone with just his pride, just living out his days. Now, you mentioned a housekeeper. Yeah, well, Miss Dolly Cato just did some day work for him. And don't you go suspecting her, Johnny, why she couldn't hurt a fly. Well, you are a lot of help. Well, maybe I better not suspect anybody, huh? That's right. Uh, well, no, uh, what I mean to say now, is... Now, 35,000, uh, three beneficiaries. Uh, yes, sir. Equal? Yes, sir. So maybe 11,000, 12,000 apiece. That's not very much. Well, now, I understand they'll share the rest of the estate, too. Oh, what do you think that plantation's worth? That old run-down house and a little bitty piece of land where it sits? Maybe 10000 all. You no idea what kind of money old Exum had to live on, where it came from? No, bank accounts or nothing, Johnny. He even paid cash premiums on his insurance. I guess he didn't like banks and such. Well, you sure don't give me much to go on. Uh, one more question. Did the uh, killer ransack the house? Well, no, not that I know of. So maybe you better take a look, huh? Yeah, Rip, I think I'd better. Before driving to Somerville to look over the scene of the crime, I checked up on Mr. Exum's niece, Clarabelle. I found her in the stock room of the 5 and 10 where she worked. She was a thin, wan-looking girl of about 30 with long, black, stringy hair badly set in a knot that bobbed about the back of her neck as she talked in a high, nasal voice that fairly set my teeth on edge. Excuse me while I set this box of ribbons. Sure. And if you all want the truth, Mr. Dollar, I am just as glad as I can be that old Uncle Valney died. He was murdered, Miss Exxon. Well, he's gone anyhow. And when I get my share from his insurance in that property, I can pay all my bills and buy myself some fancy new clothes and lots of things. Well, then you're not at all sorry about this? Of course not. He had nothing to live for anyhow, Mr. Dollar. All alone out there in that house by herself, nobody to talk to except poor Miss Cato two or three times a week when she comes to claim. Poor Mrs. Cato. How poor, Clarabelle? Oh, well, actually, she probably has more money than Uncle Valley ever had. Count up some of her kinfolks dying and leaving all that big property over to Whiteville. See, she was a Beaufort on her widowed sister's husband's side. Yeah, well... And when her cousin Sally made, she had some Beaufort blood and kin, too. I see. And when she died, with all the money and things from her cousin once removed... Oh, and now, wait a minute. He was her father's nephew's half-brother, is what it was. Yeah, thanks. Well, I'll take your word for it. Now, this Mrs. Cato, if she had money, why did she work as a housekeeper? Oh, just out of pity for Uncle Valney, him being all alone and all. Didn't you ever go out to see him? He never did want to see me, did he? I wouldn't know. No! All he cared about was sitting there counting his money and keeping his relatives from getting any of it. Except maybe call Papa. And now we'll get it anyhow, Mr. Dollar. Uh, where did his money come from, Clarabelle? Don't you know, Mr. Dollar? No. Well, now that's funny. All right, so it's funny. Now, where did the money come from? Oh, I don't know. I thought you did. Now, excuse me, I gotta get these boxes put away. Lest the boss comes back here and sees me just sitting and talking, boss don't hold much with sitting and talking. <laughs> 
questions, more useless answers. Little old Clarabelle simply didn't know anything that might be helpful to me and didn't care. Except, that is, whatever money might be coming to him. Maybe the Exum family was smart and prosperous once. But if she was any criterion, they'd done mighty poorly in the last couple of generations. I knew this. If she had anything to do with her uncle's death, she'd probably have left signs all over the place. So I drove on over to Somerville to the Exum home. Or rather, what was left of it. A hundred years ago, it might have been a mansion. But now, it was just a wreck. Two of the eight big columns on the front had fallen and simply left there to rot away in the sun and rain. Windows were broken and stuffed with newspapers to keep out the draft. There hadn't been a paint job in 20 years, at least. What little was left was cracked and peeling. The yard was nothing but weeds and moss and a thick matting of leaves that never had been raked from under the big trees that were hung heavily with Spanish moss. At the door, I was met by a Sergeant Aiken of the local police. Real glad to see you, Mr. Johnny. That Mr. Teeter from the insurance company phoned you'll be here. Come on in, sir. Come oh, thank on you, in. Sergeant. I'd like to see just where and how Mr. Exxon was murdered. Yes, sir. Right, right in here in the library. Only I guess the old man must have sold off all his books a long time ago. Now, here, sir. You see, here he was kind of sprawled across the desk there what's left of it, with that tin box by him pried open. Where is the body now? Well, it's in town for the autopsy, him being all alone when he was murdered. His housekeeper wasn't him? She's the one come in early this morning to do her work and found him laying here dead. I see. Go on. Well, it's, it's all pretty obvious, Mr. Johnny. Somebody just come in here, found him sitting here with this little tin box in front of him. What was in it? May I touch it? Oh, yeah. Well, as well. We couldn't find a single fingerprint on it. Not even Mr. Exum. No prints at all? No, sir. No prints at all. Uh, Chief, he knows about them things. He went around with a kit for prints, dusting everything. Yeah, whoever did this must have worn gloves and also wiped off everything he touched, just, just to be absolutely sure. Yeah, must have been real careful. I see. Yeah, even, even this heavy hand iron he used to kill him with. Chief even uh, checked the doorknobs, everything else for prints. Any idea then how the killer might have got in? Well, Chief and I have been through the place with a fine tooth comb, Mr. Johnny. You ask me, the old man must have let him in. When? Doc says he's killed sometime late last night. Late? Yes, that's right. Well, then from what I've heard about Mr. Exum, it had to be somebody that he knew pretty well. Yes, sir. But trying to find anybody he knew that well, this old recluse. Anybody he'd let in at night, well, yeah, the chief had a couple of the boys working on to her, but I don't see how they're going to come up with anybody. Any idea what might have been in this old tin box? Well, probably whatever money the old man had on hand. Where'd he get his money, Sergeant? No, that's a good question, Mr. Johnny. I know he never had any bank accounts, but he would uh, cash a check now and then. Well, if he had no account, I and can't... He never sold any real estate for the last 25 years. <laughs> Didn't have any to sell except, except this old place here. Well, this box certainly couldn't hold enough to keep him going for... Now, oh, wait a minute. What's this? Well, looks like a couple pieces of paper stuck there in the hinge. There's a corner of something torn off. Let's see if I can get it 
out without more tearing. Them corners weren't tore off of any money. That's for sure. No. No, this looks like a, a sort of parchment paper that's used for an insurance policy. Or maybe... Maybe that's where his money came from. What are you thinking of, Mr. Johnny? Two possibilities, Sergeant. One, the obvious one, that he had a lot of money hidden away in some secret place around this house. Well, now, we, we thought of that. On the other hand, if these torn-off corners, freshly torn, too, I believe, if they mean what I... Allison, there's a nephew living right here in Somerville, isn't there? Yes, sir. Yes, it is. Big enough to have wielded this heavy hand iron so effectively... What, sir? Well, certainly Clarabelle couldn't have done it. <laughs> Mr. Johnny, you, you're talking about his own kinfolk. Besides, she's too stupid to have covered her tracks. Well, now, if, if, you're, if you're talking about stupid... Yeah. Well, that, that nephew on his mother's side, mm -hmm. that Culpepper Oglethorpe living here in town, yeah. I mean, the one supposed to be working at real estate, but he ain't. Kind of, he ain't doing anything. All he ever got was from his uh, from his uncle. Go on, Sergeant. Well, he's so stupid that maybe he would kill one of his own kin. Where is he? Of course, I suppose so. Most anybody kills for money, though. Where will I find him? And you know, none of them, none of them three had any use for old Lexham. And only, only one of the boys could have used this. It's heavy hand, huh? Sergeant. And with Culpepper, the only one of the boys near enough to do it, you know. All right, where is he? Oh. What? Oh, oh, all I said was oh. Come on, Sergeant. No, no, sir, Mr. Johnny. Culpepper didn't do it. Well, how do you know? How can you be sure? Well, it seems he had some trouble a couple of weeks ago. Pulled a, pulled a knife on a man. Well, then he is the type. He may be the type, Mr. Johnny, but, well, ever since he's been locked up in jail. Still is. Oh. Yes, sir. Frustrating case, this one. There was nothing I could really put my finger on. The Somerville police were doing just as much as I was and were accomplishing just as much. Nothing. What about the other nephew? who also bore the name of Valny Beauregard Exxon. Rip had mentioned that he lived in Corpus Christi, down in Texas. Yes, sir, Mr. Johnny. Five or uh, six years, I'd say. Uh, what does he do down there, Sergeant? Well, I, I don't know that, sir. All I know is he had a fight with his uncle once. Mr. Exxon gave him money to get out of town, so he did. He, he hasn't been back. I wonder. Uh, when I phoned him uh, there in Corpus this morning and told him what happened... Mm -hmm. He said he was sorry that he couldn't get down here. He was pretty tied up, but he, he'd be glad to pay for a decent funeral. I'm sure he would. As if these torn-off corners of paper are what I think they are. Yeah, it looks to me like young Volney Exum's the only one that's any good of them three. Yes, sir. I mean, if he can afford a nice funeral for somebody... You bet he can. Now, listen, Sergeant, maybe I'm all wrong in playing a hunch that one of his relatives killed the old man, but it's all I've got to go on. I'll say this, Mr. Johnny. A hunch is no kind of proof. I know, I know, and proof is what I need. But even without it, I'm going down to Corpus Christi. And then... Now, believe me, I'll be the first to admit it. To admit that luck, sheer luck, is what helped me to solve this one. 
It came by way of a pile of letters just inside the mail slot by the front door. On top was an envelope with a familiar company name across the upper left-hand corner. Intrastate Telephone Company. Before the sergeant could stop me, I tore it open. And sure enough, a dividend check for $250. With Intrastate Telephone paying 50 cents a share, and I know because I own some of that stock myself, here was a dividend on some 500 shares, over $40,000 worth. All right, expense account item three after a mad drive back to Memphis, 5150, plane fare to Corpus Christi. It was late by then. So item four is $22 even, and that includes a cab into the Robert Driscoll Hotel, cocktails and dinner, and my room bill for the night. First thing in the morning, at a brokerage office on Lawrence Street, I was talking to my old friend Wayne Stocksett. Well, to answer them in order, Johnny, I'm fine, thank you. And I do think ours is the biggest stockbroker's office here in town. And yes, we do have a client by the unlikely name of Volney Beauregard Exum. But it's a very small account, though. Is he a young fellow, Wayne? Oh, I'd say uh, somewhere in his 30s. He's been my customer about five years now. Does he own much in stocks? Well, now, John... Now, Wayne, I have got to know, does he buy or sell in lots of 100, 500 shares at a time, maybe? Exum? <laughs> now, look, Johnny, I mean, you know how it is. Yeah, I, mean, I know business. how it is. A client's business is confidential. Well, why don't you ask him? What? He called a little while ago. Seems that he has some old securities that he wants to cash in, and he... Oh, wait a minute, there it comes now. Intrastate telephone. Well, that's right. How the world did you ever... Uh, right over here, Mr. Hicks. All right, now, I'll sit over here at this other desk. Now, pay no attention to me. Look, Johnny, I don't understand. Morning, Mr. Exum. Morning, Mr. Stark, sir. Sit down, won't you? Thank you, sir. Now, then, uh, are these the uh, two certificates that you want to cash in? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. All right. Just uh, sign these over to us. Sign right here, if you will. I believe there's a little ink in that pen. Uh, right here, sir. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, quite a bit to sell all at once. I know, I know. I must say, I didn't realize that you had this sort of. Business. I want uh, cash for these, Mr. Stark, sir. All in cash? I gotta make a business trip. Maybe gone sometime. Well, I don't know, Mr. Exum. Uh, let's see. This would come to over 40000 Now, uh, look here, sir. I'm an old customer. Yes, I know that's true. So, uh, here you are. Just uh, get me the cash and I'll be on my way. Don't bother, Wayne. What, Johnny? I said don't bother. Just call a policeman. Well, who are you, sir? Call a cop, Wayne. These signatures are forgeries. What are you talking about? You trying to say that I ain't... That I'm not Volney Beauregard Exum? You, you tell him, Stocksy. This is Volney Beauregard Exum, John. Sure it is, Wayne, but these signatures are forgeries. You're crazy. They were stolen from his uncle up in Memphis, also named Volney Beauregard Exum, and they were stolen from him when this man murdered him. Murdered him? You... You think you can prove that? I can prove it, Exxon. Now, listen With here. two little pieces of paper that you left behind in a tin box where your uncle kept these stock certificates. No, I didn't leave anything. Look, do you see how these corners tore off fit perfectly on these certificates? Oh, I thought I took everything. I, I you mean... mean after you killed him? Yes, I know. Let me out of here. Stop him, Johnny. Stick around. Exxon. Come, 
want to call the police now, Wayne? Yeah. Sure. What Exxon didn't know, of course, was that Wayne would have done a lot of investigating before handing over all that money. In spite of the way that he'd carried a small account with the firm to set things up for the murder and robbery. Expense account total, including the trip back to Memphis and then back to Hartford, we'll call it 325 even. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. our star to tell you about next week's story. Uh, next week, one of the cleverest rackets in jewelry that I ever saw. Over a million dollars worth. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Reddick, is written by Jack Johnstone. Produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr. Musical supervision by Ethel Huber. Good in our cast were Wendell Holmes as the police sergeant, Joan Loring as Clara Bell, Robert Dryden as Ripley Teeter, Mandel Kramer as Wayne Stockseth, and Ralph Dell as Valney Beauregard Exxon. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Art Hanna speaking. The last episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Robert Reddick. And, our ace co-producer Jill Errold Bailey reminds us, it was the first episode of that show that we played when I started hosting the big broadcast five years ago. The stock and trade matter, as it's called, came from the late spring of 1961. A week later, Mandel Kramer took over the role, and we'll hear him next week here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Along with other lessons, the last year and a half has taught us to appreciate the people who selflessly serve us each day in a number of low-paying occupations. Nurses, janitors, orderlies, and other health care workers, postal workers, letter carriers, and other delivery people, and, among the hundreds of such occupations, teachers who have struggled to keep our kids' education going in extremely difficult circumstances. One of the many hazards teachers have to navigate is bureaucracy. Sometimes policies change quickly, or an administrator might send mixed signals. Even in 2020 and 21, though, few teachers have to cope with what beset Connie Brooks at the start of the school year and the start of her radio series, Our Miss Brooks. What we're about to hear is indeed the very first episode of that long-running, first-rate comedy show. What's interesting, though, is that this initial installment isn't, well, first-rate. Frankly, it's a bit corny. And what's kind of amazing is to notice how the sheer force of Eve Arden's skill, talent, and personality moved the role of Miss Brooks and the whole series into a much more sardonic and deeply funnier direction. Another big help was the addition of Gail Gordon as the principal, Mr. Conklin. Joseph Fortius says the role in this episode, and happily, Mr. Gordon replaced him just a week or two later, and he stayed for the nearly 10-year run of the show. There are some topical references, 
to Bobby Breen, who'd been a popular child star in the 1930s, the radio show Queen for a Day, the Belgian Congo, the colonial name of what's now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and the Eden Abez song that was a hit for Nat King Cole, Nature Boy. From July 19, 1948, and to mark the beginning of the school year, it's Principal Conklin Comes to Madison High, the premiere episode of the soon-to-be-brilliant series, Our Miss Brooks. CBS presents Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. Miss Brooks is a school teacher. To be specific, she teaches English at Madison High. Connie Brooks is pretty enthusiastic about her work, too. In fact, in her own words. Although teaching isn't the most profitable career in the world, you must admit the hours are appalling. But there's always my secret heartthrob, Mr. Boynton. He's the biology teacher at school. And a sweeter, more intelligent scientist never brushed off an English teacher to play footsie with a frog. But he'll come around... Even a biology teacher must sooner or later get a little biological. <laughs> Meanwhile, I can dream, can't I? Yes, Connie Brooks can dream. Even now, she's in the middle of the sweetest dream of them all. The one that comes right before 7 a.m. Hold me closer, Mr. Boynton. There. Now kiss me. Oh... How does that make you feel? That's what it does to me, too. I'll shut it off. Miss Brooks, you'll be late. Kiss me again, Mr. Boynton. Miss Brooks, you have to go to school. For this, I don't have to go to school. (laughs) Oh. Oh. Good morning. Well, if it isn't my favorite landlady. Oh, good morning, Mrs. Davis. What in the world were you dreaming about? Oh, nothing much. Just the school. I was giving an English lesson. Well, from the way your lips were puckered, I thought you were taking a bugle lesson. <laughs> Better get up, dear. Today's the day you're supposed to find out about that new job as head of the English department from your new principal. Oh, that's right, Mrs. Davis. For three years I've been waiting for that job. Three years of scrimping and scraping to get along. Now it's all going to be different. With this raise, I'll be able to run down to Miami once in a while, and after I've had the job a while, I might even go abroad. Paris, the Riviera, Biarritz in the spring, the casino at Monte Carlo. Just how much more money does this new job pay, Miss Brooks? Six dollars a month. (laughs) You better watch your step at Monte Carlo. Money goes pretty fast down there. Money goes fast anywhere. I haven't been able to catch any for years. Now hurry and get dressed, dear. I have a lovely surprise for your breakfast. Another one of your surprise recipes, Mrs. Davis? I hope it's not clam fritters again. You'll see, dear. Come along. Here you are, dear. Here's your surprise. Armenian pancakes. They've been setting for five days. What else could they do? I mean, in goat's milk. It takes five days for it to get good and sour. Sour? Goat's milk? Here, try a bite off this fork. 
Don't pay any attention to the smell. Oh, please, Mrs. Davis, no. Well, just one bite. <laughs> Tell the truth now. Aren't they delicious? I don't want to hurt your feelings, Mrs. Davis. But if I were the goat responsible for this concoction, I would hang myself by my own beard. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'll have to pass up the pancakes. But, Miss Brooks, it's a crime to throw out these pancakes. What's the crime? Carrying concealed weapons? <laughs> You've got to have some breakfast. Could I squeeze you a persimmon or two? <laughs> no, thanks. I'll grab a kumquat on my way to work. <laughs> Hey, it's funny Walter Denton isn't here yet. He knows I wanted to get to school a little early this morning and meet the new principal. Rather convenient to have one of your pupils drive you around. Yes, my Chevy's still in the shop. I had a little accident Saturday. I ran into a parked car. Oh, that's too bad. I hope you reported it to the police. I didn't have to. They were sitting in the car. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's good. I'll get it. Oh, Miss Brooks. Come in, Walter. Well, Walter Denton, how you shot up since I saw you last. You saw me yesterday, Mrs. Uh, Davis. My, how time flies. <laughs> Come on, Walter. I've got to get down early. The new principal takes over today. What's his name, dear? Uh, Mr. Conklin. Osgood Conklin. Osgood Conklin? Why, I've known him for years. We went to school together. Really, Mrs. Davis? What kind of a man is he, anyway? Well, the other children used to call him Stoneface. Because he never laughed. Oh, fine. Well, I shouldn't say never. I did hand him a laugh one time when we were out ice skating. He was practically in hysterics. What happened? I broke my leg. <laughs> he sounds about as friendly as a subpoena. correct any nonsense of this new school, Martha, or my name isn't Osgood Conklin. I've heard all about their lack of principle and discipline, and I won't have it. Do you hear? No one is going to interfere with my making Madison High a well-run school. No one. If anyone gets in my way, I'll crush them. Step on them like so many ants. Squash them. That's nice. Pass the marmalade, dear. <laughs> and help yourself to some more toast. I hate toast. As I was saying, Martha, I'm sure that the faculty at Madison High is totally incompetent. Oh, please, Osgood, you mustn't let it irk you. Irk? Irk? Uh, drink a little water, dear. It'll go away. <laughs> no understanding. No cooperation. Nobody knows what a difficult job I'm faced with. It's awful. Awful! Please, Osgood, can't you talk without barking? Honestly, sometimes I think Prince is the only one who can really understand you. Prince? Don't mention that lazy mutt to me. Look at him over there. Dead to the world. Well, it's getting late. Now, where's my hat? Confound it, where's my hat? Please, dear, don't bark. I'm not barking, Martha. Once and for all, I don't bark. See? He does understand you. Now, be sure to drive carefully on your way to school. Oh, don't tell me how to drive the car. I'm not, dear. It's just that after all the work you put in, polishing it on Sunday, I'd hate to see it. Stop worrying. I did the work, didn't I? Ah, look at her out there. Nothing takes a wax polish like a black touring car. Well, Osgood, you'd better get started. You don't want to set a bad example for your new teacher. I'll show them a thing or two. I'll show them... Oh, shut up, Prince. Goodbye, Martha. <laughs>
before we get to school, Miss Brooks, there's something I'd like to talk to you about. It's a girl. Naturally. Who is it this time, Walter? Well, she's the baker's daughter, Penelope Miller. When I kissed her for the first time the other night, I knew she was different. But, Walter, you've kissed a lot of girls. What's so different about Penelope Miller? She tastes like caraway seeds. <laughs> oh, grand. She's probably built like a pumpernickel. <laughs> now, look, Walter, I've got a lot on my mind today, what with trying to make a good impression on the new principal. Well, all I want you to do is help me write her a letter, Miss Brooks. You see, she doesn't think that I'm mental enough. I can't understand it. And I figured, well, you being an English teacher as well as a woman, well, you'd know how to make her think I was brainy. You know, intelligent. I hate to trade on just my sheer animal magnetism. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, you are a little beastly in spots, Walter. <laughs> Don't blame yourself. Penelope just doesn't appreciate yet that a man is a thing to be treasured. When will she appreciate it? When she gets to be my age. Oh, I couldn't wait that long, Miss Brooks. What? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Miss Brooks. I guess I'm not very mental at that, but you will help me out, won't you? I'll come over to Mrs. Davis's tonight and we'll write a letter together. What do you say? Well, I don't know what I... Walter, look out! That car! What car? That big black touring car! Big black touring car? It's not quite as big as it was. You young idiot! Why don't you watch where you're... My fenders, my shining fenders lying in the gutter. Walter, put the man's fenders back on. Oh, gee, mister, I didn't You mean didn't to... mean. Why didn't you look where you were going? Well, gosh, it takes two to make an accident. A brilliant observation. <laughs> but it just happens that I was only going 15 miles an hour. You should have been going 30. We'd have missed you by a block. <laughs> now, see here, you red-haired joyrider. It was probably your fault. My fault? Why don't you learn how to drive that hopped-up hearse of yours? Hopped-up hearse. Now, listen here, young woman. I've tried to control my temper, but if you want to play rough, I can get plenty rough. Walter, I've got to run along. I'll leave you to straighten out Barking Boy. Barking Boy? That's the second time today I've been accused of barking. Young woman, I'll have you know I do not bark. Who's your friend? Go home, Prince. <laughs> Well, classes haven't started yet. Let me see. Pick up my mail first, and then... Oh, hello, Mr. Boynton. Hello, Miss Brooks. Isn't it a coincidence that we're in the same mailbox? Not an overwhelming coincidence. You see, your last name begins with the same letter mine does. Well, that's a start. <laughs> you have such a quick mind, Mr. Boynton. Well, it is thorough. Personally, I think you tax it too much. Don't you think you need more recreation, if you know what I mean? Well, carrying on my biology experiments is recreation enough. You don't know what I mean. <laughs> of course, I also collect stamps. Oh, that sounds exciting. There's no end to the possibilities. <laughs> have you ever tried your hand at beadwork? Well, no, I don't believe I have. Is it fun? Fun? Why, it makes you just tingle all over. <laughs> we, we must string a few together sometime. Mm -hmm. And basket weaving can be thrilling, too. Oh, really? Yes, if we're both in the same basket. <laughs> So much for the world of sports. <laughs> uh, Miss Brooks, if you don't mind my changing the subject, are you going to be busy tonight? Busy? 
Me? Mr. Boynton, I couldn't be unbusier. Well, I'd, I'd like to come over after dinner, that is, if we can be alone. Alone? We'll be absolutely isolated. <laughs> I hope you don't think I'm too forward, Mr. Boynton, but I've anticipated this moment for quite a while. Remember the day about five years ago when I first came to Madison High, rounded a turn in the corridor and bumped smack into you? Oh, yes, I was teaching chemistry then. You put quite a dent in my Bunsen burner. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that was the day I first suspected that we'd be more to each other than just fellow faculty members. And when were your suspicions confirmed, Miss Brooks? On our very next date, when you took me to lunch, two years later. <laughs> Gad, you were a fast worker. I don't blame you for kidding me, Miss Brooks. I guess I'm not much of a whirlwind romantically. Then most scientific people aren't. You see... The study of evolution alone tends to slow down any of the mere intemperate reflexes. Mm -hmm. You must realize that a tremendous period of time was involved before the single cell divided itself in the sea and adapted itself to the land and the air. Mm -hmm. Countless centuries passed before lower forms of life assumed their new shapes, and generations before the mammal family produced the ape family and before the ape family produced the human family. What have you been waiting for me to do? Slip back a notch? <laughs> Well, uh, what time do you think you'll be able to come over tonight, Mr. Boynton? Ah, uh, Mr. Boynton, Miss Brooks, let us not tarry. Your new principal, Mr. Conklin, is due at any moment. Oh, we'll be sorry to see you go, Mr. Darwell. Yes, you've been a wonderful principal, Mr. Darwell. Why did the Board of Education decide to have you transferred? Ours not to reason why. Ours but to teach and die. <laughs> As the great Socrates so aptly phrased it, if you've got to go, you've got to go. <laughs> Of course, I am genuinely sorry to leave old Madison High, but then we're teachers, and teachers can't afford sentiment. We can't afford anything. <laughs> As the great Professor Einstein so aptly phrased it, murder, ain't it? <laughs> you know, I still hope I can land that job as head of the English department, though. Well, that will depend upon the impression you make on Mr. Conklin. I'm taking him on a tour of inspection as soon as he arrives, Miss Brooks. Your class will be the first one visited. Oh, the first class visited? Oh, gosh, Mr. Boynton, if I'm to impress Conklin, I'll have to hurry and get things in order. I better go in and erase the children and see that the blackboards aren't throwing spitballs. Poor Miss Brooks, you're a bundle of nerves. You, you look sort of faint. Here, I'll put my arms around you until you steady yourself. Oh, no, you won't, Mr. Boynton. Just because you happen to catch me at a weak moment, I'm not letting you put your arms around me. My father told me about men like you. Then why are you putting your arms around me? My mother told me about men like you, too. <laughs> now, class, please let me have your attention. Uh, as many of you know, our, our new principal, Mr. Osgood Conklin, takes over his duties today. So, if he should drop in here at any time, there's no reason for any of us to be nervous, self-conscious, or head of the English department. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, we'll just go on in our normal manner. Now, to take up where we left off yesterday... Uh, pardon me, Miss Brooks, but Mr. Conklin and I just happened to be passing by... And... Oh, I come right in, Mr. Darwell. Uh, this way, Mr. Conklin. Thank you. Mr. Conklin, this is our Miss Brooks. How do you do, Miss Brooks? Glad to make your... Quaid a minute. Oh, thanks, Mr. Conklin. Glad to make your... Quaid a minute, too. <laughs> oh? You two have met? We sort of ran into each other this morning. Yeah, well, this is the young lady in the accident I told you about. I, oh, oh, well, uh, Mr. Conklin, I have an idea. Why don't we skip English and drop in on the... Now that I know just who Miss Brooks is, I'm particularly interested in watching her conduct her class. 
Go right on, Miss Brooks. Well, all right, Mr. Conklin. Uh, <clears throat> now, class, I'm going to read some lines to you, which I'd like you to... I mean, that I'd like you to... Uh, well, I want you to tell me whom... No, who... Uh, I'd, uh, I'd like the name of the author of the following stuff. <laughs> Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to Barry Conklin, not to praise him. <laughs> uh, that is, to Barry Caesar. Hand, please. No hands? You've all got them, you know. <laughs> Just look at the ends of your sleeves. <laughs> Oh, oh, there's a hand. Winona. I can always depend on Winona. Who wrote those lines, Winona? I don't know. I just want to leave the room. <laughs> Never mind the blindfold, Captain. Just give me a cigarette. <laughs> Come in, Miss Brooks. How is everything? Well, frankly, Mr. Boynton, I'm a little tired. I just lost two out of three falls to Mr. Conklin. Oh, you've met the new principal, eh? What's he like? He looks like he was weaned on a vinegar popsicle. <laughs> Mr. Boynton, I just dropped by to see what time you're coming over tonight. Tonight? Yes, one of my students is stopping by for a few minutes. I've, I've promised to write an intellectual letter for him to a girlfriend he's trying to impress, Penelope Miller. Penelope Miller. Yes, she tastes like caraway seeds. If you could just let me know what time you're coming over. Well, uh, I'm not sure about tonight at all right now. I'm quite worried about Violet. Violet? Yes, the, the white mouse I use in some of my experiments. Steady, Violet, dear. Steady, dear. I, I'm just going to hold you for a minute. Mr. Boynton, if you You know, I, I don't like the feel of her stomach. Mr. Boynton... It's lumpy. Well, Mr. Boynton, you told me this morning... Well, frankly, Miss Brooks, at that time, I didn't know about Violet's condition. You, you understand, I have to... I know, you have to sit up with a lumpy mouse. <laughs> well, she's terribly peaked lately. I don't know what it is. I think I better have a look at her cage. Hold a minute, will you? Here. <laughs> Miss Brooks, you dropped Violet! She attacked me! Miss Brooks! <laughs> Miss Brooks, get down off that desk! I can't! Oh, I see her! She's under that desk! Conklin is our biology laboratory. <laughs> Why, Miss Brooks, what are you doing on that desk? And where is Mr. Boynton? He's under the table with Violet. <laughs> with Violet? So that's what goes on in the biology laboratory of Madison High. Oh, but Mr. Conklin, I'm sure... So Mr. am I very get... sure. Come, Mr. Darwell. I'll be back when Violet is out from under the table. Oh, no. Oh, I've got her, Miss Brooks. We're things scared to death. Here. And look at her. Isn't she sweet? Isn't Violet a beauty? She's ravishing. And may I tell you something else, Mr. Boynton? What's that? You make a lovely couple. Hello, principal's office. Osgood Conklin speaking. Who's calling, please? Oh, I'm Mrs. Davis. Margaret Davis? 
Oh, yes, the girl I used to go ice skating with. Ha, ha, ha. How's your leg? What's that? <laughs> you want me to come over to dinner? Well, I'm afraid I... <laughs> you uh, say there's a teacher living with you that you want me to meet, a Miss Brooks. Well, I'd like... Miss Brooks! Now, look here, Margaret. I've already met that red-haired... Mr. Conklin. Hold the phone, Margaret. Uh, yes? I'm Matilda Denton of the school board. I have reason to suspect that my boy, Walter, a pupil at this institution, has fallen into the clutches of one of your female teachers. What? Yes. He told me that he had a date with a woman tonight at her home. Uh-huh. And here, this note fell out of his pocket when he came home from school. Let me read that, please. <clears throat> at last, I've got what I want. Red hair and a tough, sturdy body. <laughs> Red hair. Good heavens! Well, Mr. Conklin, have you any idea who this nefarious woman might be? Yes, I have, Mrs. Denton. Pardon me. Hello, are you still there, Mrs. Davis? No. No, I haven't been to a Turkish bath. Now, listen. I have reconsidered. I shall be delighted to dine this evening with you and, uh, <laughs> Miss Brooks. Mr. Conklin, I'll give you just 24 hours to find out who my boy is traipsing around with. Listen, Mrs. Denton. Listen, Mrs. Davis. You'll get to the bottom of this matter quickly, or there'll be a new principal here at Madison Hall. Quiet, both of you. Don't you bark at me. I'm not barking. Thanks, go home. Osgood, how did you like your dinner? Very interesting, Mrs. Davis. I've never tasted this kind of meat before. Just what is it? It's our usual Monday night supper. Seal burgers. <laughs> I'll take these dishes into the kitchen and see about the coffee. I make Bulgarian coffee, you know. It's strained through a grapefruit rind. <laughs> now then, Miss Brooks, let's get right to the point, huh? What would you think of a teacher who would allow a student to become infatuated with her and then lead him on? I'd think she was pretty terrible, Mr. Conklin. Who's the teacher? Well, we haven't any positive proof, but the boy's name is Walter Denton. Well, I think they both ought to be arrested. Walter Denton? Yes, Miss Brooks. You can deny that you were in the car with young Denton this morning? But he was just giving me a lift until my car is fixed. I never see the boy at any other time. Are you sure about that, Miss Brooks? Oh, I'm positive, Mr. Conklin. Must be my laundry. Your laundry at 8 p.m.? I deal with the owl laundry. They only come out at night. Excuse me, Mr. Conklin. I'll be back in a minute. All right, Miss Brooks. Hi, Miss Brooks. I keep you waiting? Yes, but not long enough. Look, Walter, would you come back some other time? Come on, let's get into the living room. No, Walter, no. I'm anxious to get that letter started. Not so loud, Walter. Mr. Conklin is in the dining room. Oh, the new principal? Yes, and if he finds you here tonight, we'll both be out. No, no, good. We'll have our coffee in the living room. Hi, Margaret. Quick, Walter, hide. Get behind those curtains behind the window. Oh, yeah, but I'll explain later. Get in back of them. (laughs) Who was it that rang, dear? Oh, it was just a wrong number, Mrs. Davis. On the doorbell? I mean the wrong house number. You seem quite nervous, dear. Oh, I'm all right. Come and get some coffee. It'll calm you down. Thank you. The Bulgarians drink it flat on their back, you know. (laughs) I'll be flat on my back any minute, and I wish I was in Bulgaria. 
Why, you're trembling like a leaf, Miss Brooks, and you're all flushed. Well, it is rather warm in here, don't you think? If it isn't too much trouble, Osgood, would you mind pulling back those curtains and opening the window? Oh, no, not the curtains. No trouble at all. I'd be only too happy to open the window. And I'll be only too happy to jump out of it. <laughs> there we are. Oh, where is he? What's become of him? What's become of who? Bobby Breen. <laughs> <laughs> He used to send me. Come on over to the couch, Connie. You're still overwrought. Well, thank you. I lay right down here. Oh, dear. no, I'll thank get you. you a pillow. You know, I keep pillows in the window seat just for emergency. Oh. I always say you never know when you need them. Why, hello, Walter. Here you are, Miss Brooks. <laughs> yourself. Ow! Margaret. Margaret, what's the matter? Walter Denton, come out of my window seat. Aha! Just as I thought. Miss Brooks, where are you going? I thought I'd run down to the Belgian Congo for the weekend. <laughs> Sit down, Miss Brooks. Young man, what were you doing in that window seat? If you'll only give me a chance, Mr. Conklin, I can explain. Go ahead. What were you doing in there? Hiding. <laughs> Walter, tell them just why you came here tonight. Well, I came here to see Miss Brooks. I thought we'd be alone. Oh, ho! Oh, no. Well, she was only going to help me write a letter to my girlfriend. I see. Now, let's hear you explain this, Miss Brooks. Here, read this page from Walter's diary. Mine? What is this? At last, I've got what I want. Red hair and what a tough, sturdy body. Walter! I wish everybody would stop saying Walter. Look, this isn't even my writing. Here, look at the other side. See, that's my biology notes from yesterday. I asked Mr. Boynton to loan me a piece of paper. Mr. Boynton wrote that? Miss Brooks, don't you get it? Get what? Red hair. It's you he's writing about. Mr. Boynton? Me? Just what he wanted? Tough and sturdy body. <laughs> well, I, I am strong. <laughs> Surely you're not pleased, Miss Brooks. I'm, I'm not? I mean, I'm not. <laughs> Oh, Mr. Mr. Boynton. I thought you said we were going to be alone, Miss Brooks. You too. What's happening around here? <laughs> Haven't you heard? I've been made queen for a day. Boynton, I'd like to know whether you wrote this or not. Uh, let me see it, sir. Yes, I wrote it. It was supposed to go into my diary. What's wrong with it anyway? She is strong, and I did work hard to get her. Oh, Mr. Boynton, please, not in front of everybody. It took 23 generations of crossbreeding to get a red-backed mouse like that. Red-backed mouse? Mouse? Amazing. <laughs> Miss Brooks, I'm afraid I've done you a grave injustice. You most certainly have, Mr. Conklin. You've placed your own meaning on unfortunate incidents. But I... You've accused me of misconduct with no proof whatsoever. And you've acted in general like a narrow, bigoted, unfair person. But, Miss Brooks... Mr. Conklin, I never want to see or talk to you again as long as I live. Not even about the job as head of the English department? Mr. Conklin, I've done you a grave injustice. <laughs> Let's sit down on the love seat and talk this thing over, yes. huh? Well, we'll take it up first thing in the morning, Miss Brooks. I've got to be getting home now. Come on, Walter. We'll take the bus together. Oh, we don't have to take the bus, Mr. Conklin. I've got my car outside. Your car? After our collision this morning? Oh, after I left you, I hit another car and everything snapped back into place. <laughs> well, good night, all. Good night, Walter. Good night. Good night, Walter. Good night. Good night, Mr. Conklin. Good night, Mr. Conklin. Well, now there's just the three of us, Mr. Boynton. Mrs. Davis and you and I. 
Gee, it's a beautiful night. Look at that moonlight streaming through the windows. If one would take a hint, there'd just be two of us. <laughs> two of us and one sofa. I said, if one would take a hint, there'd just be two of us. Well, here we are, just the two of us. Good. How about a little gin rummy? That's the deal. Well, I blitzed Mrs. Davis three across, but I'd rather have lost to Mr. Boynton. He's certainly naive, my little biology boy, but though he's shy, he's glad of I, and I'm sure he'll soon realize that the greatest thing he'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. have you picked up a newspaper and read about an automobile accident, chances are you think of accidents like that as always happening to someone else. If you could count on that, there'd be nothing for you to worry about, but chances are also that those very people you read about had the same feeling until something actually did happen to them. All it takes is that one brief moment of carelessness, but it can cause a lifetime of anguish. In almost every automobile accident, there are one or more violations of the law, yet those laws are made specifically for the purpose of preventing accidents. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced and directed by Larry Burns. Tonight's script was written by Al Lewis with music by Wilbur Hatch. Next week at the same time, Columbia will again present another adventure in the far from placid life of Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. Bob Stevenson speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From the summertime, a little bit before the start of the school year in 1948, it's the episode sometimes called Principal Conklin Comes to Madison High, the very first installment of Our Miss Brooks, a show that would run for nearly a decade on both radio and television. You heard it tonight on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. It's not uncharitable to say that President Herbert Hoover was surprised by and unprepared to deal with the Great Depression. What many thought was a financial problem confined to the stock market crash of 1929 turned out, due to a variety of factors, to be the greatest social upheaval in America in the 20th century. By 1931, the social problems were too big to ignore, with mass unemployment leading the way. Ninety years ago this past week, then-President Hoover announced the creation of the President's Organization on Unemployment Relief, or POOR, to mobilize private charitable sources of funding for people out of work. With a narrowly Republican Congress unwilling to provide any government funds for the project, it didn't last even a year. But two months after Poor's creation, the president appeared on a national radio broadcast, along with other prominent citizens, to garner support for the organization. Among the speakers was Will Rogers. 
It was a gamble on the president's part to invite Mr. Rogers. He was a humorist, and his stock in trade was poking fun at authority. But it's hard for us nowadays to imagine the enormous popularity of Will Rogers. He'd been a giant star on Broadway. He was a bigger movie celebrity than Clark Gable or Shirley Temple. His syndicated column appeared in hundreds of newspapers, and he was one of the first celebrities to appear on and exploit the power of radio. For all of his flaws, including racist jokes and comments, he was probably the most popular person in America. When he died in a plane crash in Alaska with the aviator Wiley Post in 1935, the impact was tremendous. I'm sure it was something like the national outpouring of grief we experienced last year when Kobe Bryant, another beloved, flawed individual, perished in an air accident in California. So President Hoover's gamble made sense, and as you'll hear, Will Rogers did express his respect and his gratitude. But after opening, characteristically, with some jokes, he went on to castigate the rich and call attention to the real problems, still very much with us today, of wealth inequality, hunger, and other social ills. The address was a sensation. It created a national stir. A year later, Franklin D. Roosevelt and his, and Will Rogers's, fellow Democrats were swept into power, and the government did indeed begin to spend money and create programs to, in FDR's words, put people to work. Although those programs didn't end the Great Depression swiftly or totally. As you can imagine, a satirist such as Will Rogers made quite a few references in his speech, among them the Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, the debate about free silver and the gold standard, revived during the Depression, the early international organization, the League of Nations, Prohibition, which was still in effect, and the lowly cuspidor, also known as a spittoon. We've got excerpts of the speech for you now, but first, I need to remind you that you're listening to The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz, Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers, and this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Now here probably from October 18, 1931, and originating from station KFI in Los Angeles, is an excerpt of the address later called Bacon, Beans, and Limousines by Will Rogers. I don't get... Don't get scared and start turning off your radios, huh? I'm not advertising or trying to sell you anything. If the mouthwash you're using uh, is uh, not the right kind and it tastes sort of like sheep dip, why, you just have to go right on using it. I can't advise any other kind at all. And uh, if the cigarettes that you're using, why, if they, uh, if they don't uh, <clears throat> lower your Adam's apple, why, I don't know of any that would. You did have to cut out apples, I guess. That's the only thing I know. Now, Mr. Uh, Mr. Owen Young uh, asked me to uh, to annoy on this program 
this evening. You all know Mr. Owen D. Young, you know. He's, uh, he's the only uh, uh, sole-surviving wealthy Democrat. So naturally, when a wealthy Democrat asked me to do anything, I, I had to do it, see. Well, Mr. Young, he's head of the Young Plan, you know. He's the originator of the Young Financial European Plan. He's uh, head of uh, a Young Men's uh, Temperance Union and originator of Young's Markets and Young Kipper. And uh, they uh, was the uh, first uh, Democratic child born of uh, white parents in Youngstown, Ohio. He uh, started the Young Plan in, in Europe. That was that every nation pay uh, just according to what they could afford to pay, see? And, uh, well, somebody else come along with, a, with, a, uh, with an older plan, than Young's plan, and it was that nobody don't pay anybody anything. And, uh, of course, that's the oldest plan there is. And that's the one they're working under now. That's why we ain't getting anything from Europe. So when Mr. Young asked me to appear, why well, I said, well, uh, I, I'm kind of particular. I said, uh, who do I, who's going who's to be the other speaker? Who else is on the, who else is on the uh, bill with me? And he said, well, I'll, uh, he said, uh, how would uh, Mr. Hoover do? Well, I slightly heard of him, you know, and I said, well, I'll, I'll think it over. I'll, so I looked into Mr. Hoover's record and uh, inquired of everybody. And uh, after I had uh, kind of thrown out about two-thirds of what Democrats said about him, why well, I, I figured that I wouldn't have much to lose by appearing with Mr. Hoover, so I'm here this evening appearing on the bill with Mr. Hoover. So uh, now you, uh, if you, uh, uh, I expect you won't hear any more of Amos and Andy. It'll just be Hoover and Rogers from now. Now we, we're reading the papers every day and, and they get us all excited over to one or a dozen different problems it's supposed to be before this country. There's not but there's not really but one problem before the whole country at this time. It's not the balancing of Mr. Mellon's budget. That, that's his worry. That ain't ours. And it's not the uh, League of Nations that we read so much about. Or it's, not, uh, it's not the silver question. The only problem that confronts this country today is that at least seven million people are out of work. That's our only problem. There is no, there, there is no other one before us at all. They, it's to see that every man that uh, uh, wants to, able to work, is allowed to find a place to, to go to work and also to arrange some way of getting a more equal distribution of the of the wealth in the country. Now, uh, it's uh, prohibition. We hear a lot about that. Well, that, that, that's nothing to compare to your neighbor's children that, that are hungry. It's, it's, it's food. It ain't drink that we're worried about today. Here a few years ago, we were so afraid that the poor people were liable to take a drink that now we've fixed so they can't even get something to eat. So uh, here we are in a country with, with more wheat and more corn and more money in the bank and more cotton, more everything in the world. There's not a product that you can name that we haven't got more of it than any country ever had in 
in the face of the earth, and yet we've got people starving. They will hold the distinction of being the only nation in the history of the world that ever went to the poorhouse in an automobile. The potter's field are lined with granaries full of grain. Now, if there ain't something cockeyed in, in an arrangement like that, then this microphone here in front of me is, well, it's, it's a cuspidor, that's all. Now, uh, I, I think that perhaps they'll, they'll arrange it. I think some our big men will perhaps fix some way of fixing a different distribution of things. If they don't, they're certainly not big men and won't be with us long. That's one thing. Now, I say, and have always claimed, that things would pick up in 32. 32, that's... Well, why 32? Well, thir because 32's an election year. See? And the Republicans always see oh. that everything looks good on on election year. See? They'll, uh... They, they give us they give us three good years and uh, and one uh, and one bad no no three bad ones and one good one I like to got it wrong that's the Democrats does yeah they give us three three bad years and one good one but the good one always comes on the year that the voting is see so uh, and you know the Democrats are always just one year late with our election see now if, we, if they was running this year well they'd be all right but they're one year late everything will pick up. Everything will pick up next year and be fine. These people that you're asked to to aid by they're they're not asking for for charity. They're asking naturally asking for a job. But if you can't give them a job, why the next best thing you can do is is see that they have food and the necessities of life. You know, there's not one of us that has anything that. Uh, these people that are without it now haven't contributed to what we've got. I don't suppose there's a, the, the most unemployed, the hungriest man in America has contributed, contributed in some way to the wealth of every millionaire in America. It wasn't the working class that brought this condition on at all. It was the, it was the big boys themselves who thought that this financial drunk we were going through was going to last forever. They over-merged and over-capitalized and over-everything else. That's the fix that we're in now. Now, I, uh, I think that every town and every city will, will raise this, this money. In fact, they can't afford not to. Uh, they've got the money because there's as much money in the country as there ever was. The, uh, only the fewer people have it, but it's there. And uh, I think the towns will, will, all, will all raise it because I've been on a good many charity affairs all over the country and I have yet to see a town or a city ever fail to raise the money when, when they knew the need was there and they, and they saw the necessity. Every one of them will, will come through. Europe uh, don't like us and they think we're arrogant and, and uh, bad manners and have a million faults, but every one of us give us... Every one of them, they, well, they give us credit for being, uh, for being liberal. Well, going it, our, we are, the people are liberal. Our Americans, I don't know about America being fundamentally sound and all that after-dinner hooey, but I do know that America is fundamentally liberal. Now, I want to thank uh, Mr. Gifford, the head of this unemployment. Thank Mr. Young, who, and I 
certainly want to thank Mr. Hoover for the privilege of being allowed to appear on the same program with him. Because uh, I, uh, Mr. I know that this subject is very dear to Mr. Hoover's heart. I know that he'd rather see the the uh, problem of unemployment solved than he would to see all the other problems he has before him combined. And uh, if every town and every city will get out and raise their quota and what they need for this winter, why, it'll make him a very happy man. And happiness hasn't been a steady diet with our president. He's had a very tough uphill fight. And this will make him feel very good. And he's a, he's a very human man. I thank you. Good night. Will Rogers, not the first and far from the last celebrity to speak out on public issues in a radio address from the fall of 1931. You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Usually, on Gunsmoke, when a guy is described as a gunman, we can be pretty sure he's no good. But the situation in tonight's episode is a little more complex. It's a story called Kite's Reward, and it comes from March 5th, 1955, CBS and Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers. And that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun Smoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Barkeep? What'll it be, young fellow? Draw me a beer, will you? Got it right here. That looks mighty good. Right, farm? Far enough. I ain't seen you around Dodge before. No. There you are. Thanks. Take it out of that, will you? Take two out of that, barkeep. Hmm? I'm having a beer, too. Any objections? Give him a beer, Barky. <laughs> now, that's right smart of you, fella. I ain't looking for trouble. Of course you ain't. Not with Jake Kroll, you ain't. Not with anybody, mister. I said my name was Kroll, didn't I? I heard it. Well, maybe you ain't so smart as I thought. 
Barkeep, I'll have a shot of whiskey with that beer. What about it, young fellow? You buying him whiskey, too? Anybody drinks with me, drinks what I drink. <laughs> Bring me the beer, Barkeep. Okay. Here you are. Now, young fella, I'm going to show you what happens to people that don't do as I tell them. Watch how I drink your beer. <laughs> Sticky wet, ain't it, young fella? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Hit me, eh? Now I'm gonna have to kill you. You killed him. Marshal, Marshal Dillon. Oh? Did you see that, Marshal? Jake drew first, not the boy. Jake made him fight. He was bullying him right from the start, and then he drew first. I'll be witness to that. I saw it. I came through the door just as it happened. Good thing you saw it, Marshal. Give me your gun. What? That ain't right, Marshal. It was self-defense, pure and simple. I said, give me your gun. Marshal, you ain't listening. It's okay, Barkeep. It's okay. Here's my gun, Marshal. My office is across the street. Let's go. It ain't fair, I tell you. Who's this you got, Mr. Dillon? I don't know, Chester. I heard the shot. Did he fire it? Yeah. Sit on there, fella. Anybody get hurt? Jake Crowell. He killed him. He did? It was self-defense, Chester. Well, then why'd you arrest him? I'd kind of like to know myself. What's your name? Andy. Andy Travis. Where are you from? On west of here. I'm just drifting. How old are you, Andy? Twenty. Where'd you learn to use a gun? What do you mean? Jake had his halfway out of the holster before you even started. He did? Well, say now, you must be pretty fast, He's eh? real fast, Chester. That's why I brought him over here. What? I'm not arresting you, Andy. I wanted to see what you're like. What I'm like? Why? It happened to me once, Andy. And it's happening to you. Anybody that can use a gun the way you can has to make a choice. You can go on using it, or you can quit before you got blood all over you. I don't like killing people, Marshal. I've done it before. I had to, same as today. But I don't like it. How'd you get so good? Practice. All my life I've practiced. I don't know why. It was fun at first, but it ain't fun now. It just leads to trouble. That's all I ever got out of it. Trouble. Then why are you still wearing it? I don't know. I wouldn't feel right without it, I guess. <sighs> How long have you been in Dodge, Henry? Just got here today. And you've already killed a man, huh? And the barkeep is going to tell everybody in town just how fast you are. And the first thing you know, you're going to have a reputation... It won't be very long before somebody tries to cut you down for it. 
You're going to have to go on killing the rest of your life. However long that is. It's too late already, Marshal. No, it isn't. You're not a killer, Andy. I know a killer when I see one. No. No, I'm sure not. But you're going to have to kill one man after another. I know. Well, I'm not going to watch it. You take your gun off and you leave it off or you get out of Dodge. You go do your killing someplace else. Marshal, you think I could find a job here? Chester. Yes, sir? Moss Grimmick's looking for a man over at the stable. Yes, sir. On your feet, Andy. I'll show you where it is. Andy didn't say anything. He just got up and followed Chester out of the office, leaving his gun with me. I unloaded it, threw it in a drawer, and I hoped it'd stay there forever. After a few weeks had passed and it was still there, I began to think that maybe it would. Andy worked out fine at the stable. Everybody liked him. And Moss Grimmick soon trusted him enough to let him run things by himself while Moss started to get in more fishing than he had in years. Sometimes Chester went with Moss, and well, having Chester out of the office gave me a chance to catch up on some paperwork. This the marshal's office? Yeah, come in, come in. You, the marshal? What can I do for you? Remember me. What? Remember me next time you see me. I mean it. Take a good look, marshal. Who are you, mister? Joe Kite. All right, Kite. Say your piece. I did, marshal. I want you to know me. I want you to know my name. Why? Because I don't want you to shoot me or buffalo me. Or treat me in any kind of hurry at all next time you see me. Why? Because I might have to shoot a man. What are you talking about? I can't tell you now. I'll tell you after I've done it. Are you drunk? Plum, serious, Marshal. There's no need for you to get all fretted up. I'm not going to do anything wrong. Shooting people around here is wrong, mister. Kite. Joe Kite, Marshal. What are you trying to tell me? Dad, I may have to shoot somebody. But if I do, there won't be nothing wrong about it. Now, I want you to know, in case you come running up with your finger on the trigger of a shotgun or something. You look like a bar bum to me, Kite. I doubt if you even own a gun. Oh, I'm going to get one, Marshal. I see you wearing a gun, and I'll take it off you and throw it away. Now, Marshal, that's no way to... Get out of here. All right. But you're going to talk different, Marshal. Keep moving. You'll see. You, You just wait. 
Chester. What do you wish? Ah. Hello, Mr. Dillon. <laughs> what are you looking so guilty about? Well, I, I, I'm not. <laughs> Nothing. Man spends all day out fishing. He deserves a little beer afterwards, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Where's Moss Grimmick? Uh, well, he went back to the stable so Andy could get away for a while. Andy's sitting over there with Miss Kitty. Oh. Did you catch any fish? Uh, yes, sir. Yes, we did. We got a whole sack full, Mr. Dillon. All catfish. Good, good. Well, you finish your beer, Chester. I'll be back in a few minutes. Okay, sir. Hello, Matt. Hello, Kitty. Andy. Hello, Marshal. Take a chair. Ah, thank you. I uh, hear your boss is loaded with catfish, Andy. He's over at the stable now, trying to give them away to anybody who will have them. Oh, if he and Chester are going to keep on, we ought to fix up a fish muddle one of these days. A fish muddle? <laughs> I never heard of that, Miss Kitty. Oh, then you've never been in Kentucky, Andy. I've seen them making in 20-gallon batches down there. It's uh, oh, kind of a fish stew, I guess, but it's awful good. Say, I'd like to try that. Let's do it, huh? Uh -huh. Next week sometime. First day, Moss and Chester can guarantee the fish. I'll tell them about it. I better get back to the stable now. See you later, Miss Kitty. Okay, Andy. So long, Marshal. So long, Andy. He's an awful nice boy, Matt. Yeah, I think he's going to make out fine, Kitty. <laughs> he already has. It sure bothered him at first, though, not wearing a gun. You know, he told me he'd been working with a gun since he was about 12 years old. Yeah. You know, he's a natural, Kitty. Some men can practice all their lives and never be any good. Well, it's sure nice to know one man that wants to live peaceful. <laughs> yeah. He's mighty lucky he ran into you. What's that? You better stay in here, Kitty. Don't worry. Everybody but Chester, stay right where you are. You want me to guard the door, Mr. Dillon? No, follow me. Quite Andy. That fella shot him. I, I never saw that man before, Mr. Dillon. His name's Joe Kite. Joe Kite? Yeah. Hello, Marshal. You gonna use that gun again, Kite? No, no, of course I ain't. That's too bad. I kind of wish you wouldn't. Well, I told you, Marshal, I didn't do nothing wrong. But, now... Marshal, no. Marshal, no. Marshal! Mr. Dillon, Andy's still breathing. Well, I'll carry him over to Doc's, Chester. Yes, sir. When Joe Kite comes to, you kick him into jail, huh? It'll be a pleasure. How's Andy feeling, Mr. Dillon? Uh, 
Doc doesn't think he has much chance, Chester. Oh. Won't even let me talk to him. Clean murder. That's what it was. Did uh, Kite say anything? He started to, but I told him to shut his head or I'd buffalo him. Yeah. Well, I'll talk to him now. It's about time you came, Marshal. You had no reason to lock me up. You had no reason to hit me either. I told you what might happen. Well, unlock it and let me out of here. You'll get out of there when you go to trial. That's where you're wrong, Marshal. You're going to let me out of here now. Why did you murder him, Kite? I didn't murder him. I told him I was going to take him in and he resisted. Take him in? I was going to march him right in here and turn him over to you, Marshal. What are you talking about? His name isn't Andy Travis, Marshal. It's Andy Haycox. So? Of course, you didn't know it or you'd have arrested him yourself. I couldn't tell you before this or I'd have lost the reward. thousand dollars, Marshal. That's what he's worth. And I get it. But you don't believe me? You ever hear the Fisher gang up around Laramie? Well, Andy Haycox is one of them. And they're all worth $1,000 apiece, dead or alive. I just come down from Wyoming. They got their pictures up all over. Sure lucky I recognize them, ain't I? You're lucky, Kite. You're real lucky. If Andy had been carrying a gun, you'd be dead. If he'd have been carrying a gun? He took it off his first day in Dodge, and he hasn't worn one since. I don't believe you. Don't you? No, it ain't true. No, he had it under his coat. I stopped him, and I told him to come with me, and why. And then he started to grab for his gun, and I had to shoot him. An outlaw like, like, of course he had a gun. I'll ask Andy what he did, if he lives long enough to tell me. He'll lie? You gonna take the word of an outlaw against mine? Chester. Yes, sir? I'm going out for a while. I'll be back shortly. What do you mean you ain't gonna turn me loose? You're gonna leave me in here? You got no right to do If that? he gets too noisy, Chester, club him. It's Matt, Doc. Come in, Matt. Come in. How is he this morning, Doc? Oh, about the same, Matt. We'll talk and hurt him. Yeah, if you don't get him excited, uh, talk too long, uh, I guess it won't matter. It won't matter? Well, he thinks he's in fair shape, Matt, but uh, one hemorrhage and he's gone. It can happen any time. No. You go see him. He's in the back room there. Okay, Doc. Hello, Andy. Marshal. Well, I hear you feel pretty good. 
I still got a bullet in me. Oh, well, Doc will take it out as soon as he can. It wouldn't be there if I hadn't forgot I wasn't carrying a gun. I just naturally went for it, and it wasn't there. So he shot me. Yeah. I guess he's told you about me, Marshal. Uh, he said that uh, you're wanted up in Laramie. Dead or alive. That's what them posters said. You were part of a gang, Andy. Long enough for him to put up a reward for me. But I quit, Marshal. I quit. Well, what do you mean? A fisher and them fellas. I told them I was through. They tried to stop me, but I said I'd shoot my way out if I had to. So they let me go. You quit the gang? That's what I'm telling you. Well, why did you quit? They killed a fellow one night after they robbed him. I don't like killing people like that, Marshal. I had to quit. Oh, you should have told me, Andy. Maybe I, I could have done something. It's going to make you look bad now, ain't it, Marshal? Being friends and helping me and all. No. No, it won't, Andy. <laughs> and I wouldn't care if it did. First time in my life anybody ever done anything for me. I'm sorry it didn't work out, Marshal. Everything's going to be just fine, Andy. Don't you worry about it. No. No, it ain't, Marshal. Marshal. Uh, Doc. Doc, come in here, will you? Well, we'll do something for him, Doc. Well, I... Well, I'm sorry, Matt. I, I just... He's dead, Matt. Uh, Matt? Chester? Yes, sir. Bring Joe Kite in here. Okay, Mr. Dillon. Right out of your cage, Kite. The marshal wants you. About time I got out of here. Oh, shut up and go on in the office. You change your mind, eh, Marshal? Singing a different tune now, huh? Andy told me what happened, Kite. You're clear. Always knew I was. You should have believed me from the start, Marshal. That's all right. I don't hold no grudges. Hey, when do I get my reward money? I telegraphed Laramie a few minutes ago. You did? Good. How long do you think it'll take, Marshal? I wouldn't wait around for it, Kite. What do you mean? Andy's dead. Well, what difference does that make? I put it in the telegram. I told him Andy was dead. And that I killed him. <laughs> <laughs> 
You what? Of course, I won't collect the reward. As a U.S. Marshal, I don't get cut in on reward money. Oh, no. You're fooling me, Marshal. You didn't tell him that. I think they'll take my word against yours, Kite. And besides, Chester witnessed it. Didn't you, Chester? Yes, sir. I've, I've seen the whole thing. You, you can't do this to me. You're stealing my money. That's what you're doing. You're being a thief. You're... Get out of Dodge, Kite. Get out of Dodge while you can. Oh, no, no. He ain't done nothing. Open the door. This, this, this ain't fair, Marshal. You can't do it. Get out before I kill you. Mr. Dillon, I'm sure I'm sorry to hear about Andy. Yeah. Did you really telegraph all that stuff to Laramie? I did. And that's true enough. I feel like I had killed him. Oh, no, sir. And what's worse, Chester, because of me, he couldn't even die fighting. I hope I have better luck when my time comes. Produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Handley and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were Sam Edwards, Joe Duval, John Daner, and Vic Perrin. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Remember, listen again next week for another transcribed story of the Western Frontier when Marshal Matt Dillon, Chester Proudfoot, Doc, and Kitty, together with all the other hard-living citizens of Dodge, will be with you once more. It's America growing west in the 1870s. It's drama. It's gun smoke. Reward, an episode of Gunsmoke from the winter of 1955 and from the big broadcast here on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz, Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org, check out our website at thebigbroadcast.org, And by all means, visit our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast. 
We've often remarked that juvenile delinquency was something of a hot topic in America in the 1950s, and we've heard some radio shows, including a recent Johnny Dollar episode, that dealt with it as a societal problem. In tonight's Dragnet episode, though, Detectives Friday and Smith find themselves on the trail of a different kind of teenaged malefactor. It's an episode called The Big Genius, the July 12, 1955 installment of the NBC series Dragnet. Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a juvenile detail. A woman reports that a teenage boy has been stealing food from her home. She says she's seen him several times. Your job? Check it out. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, April 12th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of juvenile detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Powers. My name's Friday. I was on my way into the office, and it was 7.57 a.m. when I got to the second floor of Georgia Street Juvenile. Squad room. Now don't try to tell me you needed three hours to make a simple phone call. He was arrested at 1 o'clock this morning. That's right. I didn't hear about it until after 4. Now, why weren't we contacted immediately? My wife was half out of her mind. We're sorry about that. Oh, morning, Joe. Morning. Mr. Neff, this is my partner, Sergeant Friday. How are you? This is Vincent Neff's father, Joe. I see. Were you in on this thing too, Friday? That's right. Took both of you to arrest a 15-year-old boy, did it? We made the arrest together. Why? Well, I'd be ashamed to admit it. Well, just what seems to be the trouble, Mr. Neff? My boy's in jail. He's been there all night. Yes, sir. I found out about it a couple of hours ago. I want to know why I wasn't called at once. Well, sir, we called you as soon as we could. Your son wasn't carrying any identification. He refused to answer our questions. We had no way of knowing who to contact. Well, he was scared, that's all. You can't blame him for that. Mm. How'd you get his name if he wouldn't tell you? You beat it out of him? The other boy we picked up decided to cooperate with us. I'll just bet he did. He wanted to shift some of the blame. My son's done anything at all, anything he shouldn't. You can be certain that Lemmert kid put him up to it. Mm -hmm. Vincent doesn't even know what this is all about. You've talked to him, have you? Certainly. Says it's a mistake, the whole thing. Sure. Oh, I suppose the police don't make mistakes, huh? We make them. I'll say you do, and you pulled the beauty this time. It doesn't look that way to us, Mr. Oh, don't tell me how it looks. I know my son. I know when he's telling the truth. He says this is a mistake, and I believe him. Well, that's natural, I guess. No, I'm not going to make any wild threats or try to go over your heads, but I want that boy released, and I want him released at once. Sorry, sir, we can't do that. I'm being just as patient as I can with you, Sergeant. Mr. Neff, we filed a petition on your son. There'll be a pre-detention hearing in juvenile court as soon as possible. The court will decide what happens to him after that. It's out of our hands now. It wasn't out of your hands last night when you arrested him. That was our job. Your job is to protect people's rights. You're supposed to be cops, not bullies. Take it easy, Mr. Neff. There's plenty of crime in this town and plenty of criminals. Robberies, killings, holdups. Only trouble is they never get solved. Guess the police force is too busy manhandling youngsters and chasing bums out of freight yards. All right, right, Mr. Neff. Too busy or too scared. You're afraid to tackle the real gangsters. You might get hurt. You'd you'd rather pick on a teenage kid who can't fight back. Cowards, that's what you really are. You're you're cowards, not policemen. Let me ask you something, Neff. Suppose a couple of guys drive into a filling station. One of them cracks the owner over the head with a tire iron while the other one cleans out the cash register. You think we ought to forget about it or go after them? I'm not interested in hypothetical cases. I'm talking about my son. So am I. 
What do you mean? You said you spoke to the boy. Didn't he tell you why he's here? He said he didn't know. Is that what it is? You, you think he's mixed up in a filling station robbery? Is that where you're holding him? Maybe you better ask him again. I'm asking you. Yes, that's right. That's it. Well, you'd better be able to prove it, Sergeant. Believe me, you'd just better be able to prove it. A woman across the street from the station saw two boys drive away. She got the license number. Vince doesn't have a car. It was young Lemmert's jalopy. But your son was still with him when we made the arrest. Well, that doesn't prove anything. That doesn't prove they were together at the filling station. It was some other boy, not Vince. That's what your son says, too. Well, then why don't you believe him? Lemmert gave us a different story. Well, what do you expect? He doesn't want to take all the blame. He's in a jam and he wants some company. The woman across the street is sure there were two boys, Mr. Neff. Well, that, that doesn't make one of them my Vince. Does she say it was Vince? Is she willing to swear to it? No, sir. What about the owner of the station? Has he identified my son? He can't identify anybody. He's still unconscious. Oh. Well, I, I'm sorry for him, of course, but you, you haven't got any right to blame Vince. And you haven't got any evidence against him either. We got the tire iron that was used in the slugging, Neff. Well, what about it? We had it checked by Leighton Prince. Well? They found a set. Well, it, they, they can't be Vince's fingerprints. They, they can't be. I'm afraid they are. Oh, no, 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 you're, you're, you're wrong. You made a mistake. Not this time. Look, we're sorry, Mr. Neff. Oh. Oh, why? Why would Vince do a thing like this? There, there's no reason. He's had everything. Everything we could give him. Different if we were poor, if he didn't get an allowance every week. Yeah. There's just no reason. No, sir, I guess he found one. Well, I... I'm sorry. Sorry if I was a little rough on you. It's all right. I, I better get on home now. His, his mother will... She'll, she'll want to know if he's all right. Yes, sir. Oh, I'll... There's one thing. Yes, sir. If he really did this terrible thing, I'm... I'm glad you caught him right away, right after it happened. Now we've got a chance. Sir? But it won't happen again. What do you got there? Huh? Oh. I didn't realize I still had it with me. What is that? Well, it's one of those puzzles with numbers you move around, try to line them up. Mm. The kids brought it home last night. I was showing them how to work it. <laughs> Guess I stuck it in my pocket. Mm -hmm. It's real easy, Joe. There, you see? I've got them all in order. One... Hmm. That's funny. Boy, what's the matter? Nothing. Nothing. I just had a couple out of sequence, that's all. Well? Well, give me a minute, can't you, Joe? You got three numbers in the wrong place Look, now. Joe, I can't work the puzzle when you're watching me like that. Oh, that's it. I get it. Juvenile Friday. Yes, ma'am. I see. Well, do you know the boy? Can you give me your address, please? All right. I have it. What? Yes, ma'am, we would. Will you be home? All right. Thank you very much. Lady up in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah. Some youngster's been stealing groceries out of her garage. She know who it is? She's got a pretty good idea. Yeah. She almost caught him. Frank and I left the office and drove out to a hillside address on Edgewood Drive, two miles north of Hollywood Boulevard. It was 9.17 a.m. when we got there. Well, 
There isn't too much to tell. Week, ten days ago, I started missing things from the garage here. What sort of things? Canned goods. I keep an extra supply on those shelves over there in the corner. Oh, I see. But there wasn't much gone, just a couple of items now and then. First, I wasn't even certain. I thought maybe I'd used them up myself and forgot about it. Mm-hmm. Then this morning, I saw him. Uh, it was right after Clarence went to work. Well, now, about what time would that be? Uh, 7 a.m. That's when he leaves. No later than 5 after. Mm-hmm. I was doing up the breakfast dishes, and I heard somebody fussing around the garage. By the time I got to the back door, he was sneaking off across the yard. I gave a shout, started after him. What happened then? I guess my yelling kind of took him by surprise. Anyway, he turned around and dropped the stuff he was holding. He sure didn't wait to pick it up, though. He started off as fast as his legs would carry him. He had it up the hill there. That was the last I saw of him. Well, now, just what was it he dropped, Miss Roman? A couple of cans of my groceries and a big paper bag. That's it there on the uh, on the stool there. Mm-hmm. I, uh... I looked inside. Maybe I shouldn't have, but I thought it might be some more of my canned goods. That's all right. What do you got, Joe? Books. Huh? Books here. Huh? Theoretical physics, principles of dynamics, frontiers of molecular structure. Couldn't make head nor tail of them myself. Must be something he's studying. Yes, ma'am. His name in them? No. No, they're all from the Hollywood Library. Mm Mm-hmm. Whatever you tell us what he looks like, Ms. Roman. Yes, I guess so. Uh, first off, I'd say he looks like books. How's that? Well, you know, the study in Oh, type. yes, I see. Sort of uh, thin and pinched. Mm-hmm. Blondish hair. Uh, light complected. About how tall is he? Mm, five feet six or seven. Might look taller than he really is on account of being so thin. Mm-hmm. About how old would you say he was? Fifteen, sixteen, somewhere in there. Just a youngster. Did you notice his clothes? Mm, hat on, pants looked pretty worn. And a sweater. What about the color? The sweater was blue. Pants were too faded to tell. Mm-hmm. Now, now I want you to understand one thing, Mr. Friday. Yes, ma'am? I'm not real upset about him taking our food. If he needs it, that is. It just seems to me there ought to be a better way of going about it. Nobody has to steal. Yes, ma'am. Is today the first time you ever saw this boy, Ms. Roman? Oh, no, 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 no. I've seen him a couple of times before. One or two mornings, he walked past the house on his way down the hill. The other evening, I saw him heading back up. Of course, I didn't connect him with uh, my missing groceries then. Well, we'll have a look around. If he just lives up on the hill, he shouldn't be too hard to find. Oh, no. No, Mr. Friday. He doesn't live up there. Nobody does. Ma'am? Edgewood Drive gives out a hundred yards beyond us, just around the next curve. Oh, I see. We're the last house. a.m. Frank and I left Mrs. Roman. We drove up to the end of Edgewood Drive and we got out of the car. Well, she's right, Joe. What's that? No place for anybody to live around here. I think you're way out in the country. Yeah. Frank? Huh? Over there, halfway up on the slope. Where? See? Right behind that tree. Oh, yeah. What's it look like to you? I don't know. Oh, I guess. Why? Maybe that's where he set up housekeeping. Hmm? What are you talking about, Joe? Well, didn't you ever try it when you were a kid? Try what? Hiding out in a cave. We climbed up the side of the hill. About 200 yards east of the road, we came to a small hole. Behind this opening was a shallow natural cave. Frank and I crawled inside. The cave was about eight feet long and four feet wide. 
The boy we were looking for was not there, but there was plenty of evidence that this was where he'd been living. The sleeping bag was rolled up in one corner. Beside it was a small supply of canned food. We found 10 or 12 notebooks filled with handwritten mathematical equations and some 50 textbooks on advanced physics or higher mathematics. He sure believes in making use of the public library. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Just about every branch in town. Well, I suppose there are worse things we could be reading. Yeah. Looks like they aren't all library books. Hmm? What do you got, Jeff? There's a couple here with book plates. Huh? Owners' names in them. Book plates in three of the texts indicated that they were owned by a person named Carl Winderman. All the other volumes were the property of various Los Angeles libraries. We contacted the office and made arrangements for another team of juvenile officers to stake out on the cave. On our way downtown, we stopped off at the Hollywood Library. We showed the librarian several volumes which belonged to that branch. Her records indicated that the books had not been checked out. She had no idea who had taken them or when. 11.13 a.m., we put out a local with a boy's description and we checked with missing persons. As far as we could tell, he had not been reported missing. 11.46 a.m., Frank and I made several calls to branch libraries. They all said that the books in question had been removed from their shelves without authorization. We checked the phone directories for the name Carl Winderman. At 12.06 p.m., we reached him at his office at Bradfield University. Yes, sir, I see. Hmm. Well, that'd be up to you, sir, any time you say. I'd be fine with us. Yes, sir. Well, thanks very much. That's the right guy, Joe. Head of the physics department. Mm -hmm. Do you know anything that might help us? Yeah, he knows the boy. Four sixteen p.m., Frank and I drove out to the Bradfield campus. We met with Dr. Carl Winderman in his office on the second floor of the science building. Yes, yes, I've talked to the boy several times. Mm-hmm. Did you know he had these books of yours? Of course, I loaned them to him. Oh, I see. How'd you happen to meet him, doctor? It was here at the university. Yes, sir. He came to see me. He had read some articles of mine. He wished to discuss them. What's that? It was not presumptuous. He has a brilliant mind. Extraordinary. I see. And he also is to inquire about enrolling. He asked about a scholarship. Mm -hmm. I tried to discourage him for a year or so at least. He's very young. Did he say how old he was? Eighteen, that is what he told me. I'm afraid it is not the truth. About how old would you say he is? Mm, perhaps sixteen. Do you know his name, sir? Peter. Mm. His last name? I suppose he told me, but I'm afraid I do not remember. The typical absent-minded professor. What about his family? Did he mention them? No. I imagine they are not well-to-do the way he was dressed, the inquiry about a scholarship. Yes, sir. Did he say where he lives? In Los Angeles, that's all. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, I think he did mention something about uh, recently coming to California. Mm-hmm. From one of the eastern states, Pennsylvania, perhaps. You wouldn't know which town, would you? No, I'm sorry. Is there anything else you can tell us about him, Dr. Winderman? Well, I would say he is an happy boy. You say he's unhappy? Yes, what, sir. What do you mean? Lonely, aloof. It must be very difficult for him. Other people. The children his age, he would be unable to talk to them. They would have nothing in common, even adults. I see. A brilliant mind does not necessarily make for a well-adjusted person, especially in one so young. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Winneman. Leave you one of our cards. If you should hear from him again, would you get in touch with us, please? Yes, of course. If there is anything I can do for Peter... It's very kind of you. Is he uh, in some kind of trouble? Well, we don't know yet, sir. I did not mean to pry. Forgive me. Well, the fact is, he's been borrowing some books that don't belong to him. Books? Yes, sir. From libraries around town. <laughs> to want to read, to want to learn. Is that such a serious crime? It does not seem like one to me. Yes, sir. 
And is that all he's done? Well, he's taken some other things, too. Food, canned goods. Yes, of course, I should have known. When he was here, I should have known. Thank you, pardon? But it has been so long since I've seen one. What's that, sir? A boy who is hungry. Frank and I went back to the office. The officers on stakeout reported that the boy had not returned to the cave. The stakeout was continued. 7.48 p.m. You still fooling with that thing? Hmm? Oh, I wasn't even thinking, Joe. I just happened to reach in my pocket. Let me see. Did you get him an order yet? I wasn't trying, Joe. I told you I didn't even know I was fooling with it. Mm. You get it. I wasn't trying. Yeah. You have until Friday. Yeah. Uh-huh. Whereabouts? Okay. We'll be right over. Thank you. Kid walked into a grocery store, walked out without paying for his groceries. Sound like our boy? Stores on the corner of Green Street and Edgewood. Frank and I drove out to the Huggin grocery store on the corner of Green and Edgewood. 8.17 p.m. We pulled up and went inside. I was waiting on another customer. I didn't pay much attention to him. Next thing I knew, he was sneaking out the door. Yes, sir, what can I do for you? We're police officers. This is Frank Smith. My name's Friday. You from Central? That's right. I'm Davis, Hollywood. Did you get a description here? Yeah, my partner's out looking around. I'll give him a hand. Okay, thank you. Say, uh, will you take care of the report? Yeah, we will. Thanks. Now, uh, this ain't no big robbery or anything like that. He was just a kid, you understand? Yes, sir. Could you tell us what he looked like, Mr. Uh... Huggins, uh, Andy Huggins. The same as a sign on the window there. That's right, sir. Well, like I said, he was a kid. Mm-hmm. Teenager, about halfway. How's that? Halfway in his teens, you know, about 15 or 16. I see. Light hair, thin on a rail. How was he dressed, sir? Pants, sweater. I see. Just what did he take from your store, Mr. Huggins? Well, I, I, I couldn't say for certain. Uh, I wouldn't have known he took anything if it hadn't dropped out from under his sweater when he was sneaking out the door. Yeah. Can of corned beef. That's what it was that fell. Mm-hmm. Did you see which way he went? Out the door, up the street. I told the other policemen, I guess they were after him. Yes, sir. I don't know whether I done right or not. How's that? Inimportant. I expect it seemed like a lot of fuss about a few groceries. No, sir. Trouble it is, you let one of them get away with something like this, the news gets around. Next thing you know, the store's full of them, you know. The kids try to steal you blind. Yes, sir, we understand. Worse than a plague of locusts. Sergeant? Yeah, Davis. Out in the car? What? We got him. Patrol car officers had found the boy hiding in an alley a few blocks west of the grocery store. We transferred him to our vehicle and drove him down to Georgia Street. 9.46 p.m., we took him up to the interrogation room for questioning. Sit down, son. All right, now you want to tell us about it? About what? Well, let's start with your name, huh? Well. Paul. Paul what? Jones. You sure about that, are you? I don't know my own name. Yeah, you should. Where do you live, Paul? San Diego. What are you doing in L.A.? Just looking around, that's all. Mm -hmm. What's your address, son? Huh? In San Diego, what's your address? I don't know. You know your name, but you don't know where you live. Only moved to California a few weeks ago. You live with your folks? Sure. They have a telephone? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. What's father's name? Bill. Bill Jones. How long you been in Los Angeles, son? Just today. Just today? 
Hitchhiked in this morning. Did you ever hear of a man named Carl Winderman? Who is he? Now, look, Pete, you're not doing yourself any good here. Did you hear what I said? My name's Paul. Why'd you steal that stuff from the grocery store, son? I don't know. What kind of an answer is that? You're in trouble, Pete. Serious trouble. Am I? All right, you won't tell us, we'll tell you. You didn't come to Los Angeles today. You've been here for a couple of weeks. You've been living in a cave up in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah? And this grocery store tonight isn't the first time you've gotten out of line. Why'd you take all those books, son? What books? Well, just shows you how much these college professors really know. Huh? Like that Dr. Winderman? He says you're a smart kid. You've got a real good head on your shoulders. Well, he's a pretty poor judge of brains, isn't he? A lot you know about it. Well, he's so far ahead of you guys that... Thought you never heard of him. All right, now, Pete, let's quit fooling around. Let's have it straight. All of it. What do you want? Your name isn't Paul Jones. Now, what is it? Siler. Pete Siler? Yeah. Where's your home? You found it. I didn't mean that cave, your real home. I don't know. I used to live with my sis back in Philly. Well, what happened? She got married. Threw me out. What about your folks? They're dead. What the heck are you doing? Hmm? That thing. It's just a puzzle. Oh. You're supposed to line up the numbers. One through fifteen. Yeah? There. You want to try it? Is that all? Hmm? Just line them up? Sure. Now what? Well, that's it, I guess. Oh. Why'd you come out to California, Pete? Wanted to go to college. Thought maybe I could study physics. Did you finish high school? No, not the history and English part. What do you mean? Science and math, I finished them a couple of years ago when I was a kid. Just how old are you? Sixteen, almost. Mm-hmm. Be harder if you didn't look at it. Huh? That puzzle. Yeah? You know, let the guy see it first so he knows just where the numbers are. Oh, yeah. Then make him work it with his hands behind his back. For memory. Huh. Be harder that way. Yeah. Mm. I'll show you. Go ahead, mix them up. Okay. I thought you were going to memorize it first. I did. Take a look. I get them right? Yeah. It's harder that way, though. All right, Pete. Now let's go back to it. Hmm? Why'd you take all those books? I wanted to study them. I was going to return them when I was through. I couldn't get a library card, not without a real address. What about the canned goods you've been stealing? It wasn't much, just enough to eat. Mm-hmm. Well, what's going to happen to me now? Well, that's not up to us. Huh? What do you think ought to happen? Well, I don't know. Well, I don't see where I did anything so wrong. You don't, huh? Well, did I? You stole books, you stole food. You caused us a lot of trouble. Yeah. Well, you're the whiz at math, aren't you? Huh? You added up. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you've just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On April 16th, a hearing was held in juvenile court, the state of California, in and for the county of Los Angeles. Peter Ellis Siler was made a ward of the juvenile court and was placed in a foster home. Through the efforts of Dr. Carl Winderman, he was permitted to enroll in Bradfield University as a special student in the field of higher mathematics and physics. You have just heard Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action, and starring Jack Webb 
a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. Dragnet, The Big Genius, an episode from Midsummer 1955 and from the Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz, Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Earlier tonight, I mentioned Bob Bailey, who gave up his signature role as Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, when the production of that show moved from Los Angeles to New York at the end of 1960. But Bob, or Robert Bailey, as he was known, had had quite a career before he was Johnny Dollar, and, in honor of the start of the school year, we're about to hear an episode of his detective series, Let George Do It, set on the campus of the fictional Western State University. In what must have been an inside joke, Jeff Chandler, who played the bashful biology teacher Mr. Boynton on the then brand new series Our Miss Brooks, appears in this episode as a self-effacing philosopher who has to converse somewhat awkwardly with Bob Bailey's sidekick named... Are you ready? Miss Brooks. In a further irony for Mr. Chandler, the story takes place in the biology department. It's called The Flowers That Smelled of Murder. It's one of those classic mystery climaxes where the detective assembles all the suspects in one place and then solves the case. The show comes from November 1st, 1948, the Mutual Don Lee Network, and the series Let George Do It. Standard of California, on behalf of independent Chevron gas stations and standard stations throughout the West, invites you to Let George Do It. The Flowers That Smelled of Murder, another adventure of George Valentine. Personal notice, danger's my stock and trade. If you're in on a game and you know you're going to draw the losing hand, deal me in, George Valentine. Write full details. Dear Mr. Valentine, I'm a freshman at Western State University. I'm majoring in botany, and I've suddenly found out that flowers can smell of murder. My professor of botany is about to be killed. Several attempts have been made on him, but nobody takes me seriously. I'm sure I'm not imagining things. So, so... I'm not imagining things, so give me a chance to tell you the whole story. I live in Quonset Hut Number 8, University Road. The name is Louise Durain. Uh-huh. That row of Quonsets on University Road, they're all reserved for XGIs. If our freshman friend took any part in the recent unpleasantness, she's not likely to be a lightheaded character. Well... So, if she has murder on her mind... Okay, whether she's an ex-whack or just plain wacky, Western State, here we come. Well, Louise... Yes, sure, she's here. Uh, darling, you coming out soon? Oh, I'll be right there, Daddykin. I just got out of the shower. Uh, have a seat, Miss Brooks. Mr. Valentine, she won't be long. Oh, Thanks. thank you. Louise wrote me quite a letter. She said something about a murder. Oh, yes, I know. The poor child's been walking around with the idea of murder on her mind for days. Uh, which reminds me... Reminds you of what? Do you know what Socrates said about murder, Miss Brooks? 
I beg your pardon? Nothing. Oh. oh. Even though society did murder him, you know. They just drank the hemlock and died. You see, after looking well at the world, the true philosopher decides there's nothing to say. <laughs> yeah, well, that's very interesting. But about Louise and no, this letter... I leave my pink sweater. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you had company, Mark. It's impolite to stare, George. Can't help it, Angel. My mother decided I was going to be a boy baby. Uh, dear, th this is Mr. Valentine and his assistant, Miss Brooks. Oh, of course. How do you do? How do you do? I'm so glad you did take my letter seriously. I suppose I should tell you what this is all about. Well, it would help. Poor Professor Cobra is in terrible danger. I don't sleep nights thinking about it. Oh, yes. The handsome professor is a source of great concern to my wife. Your wife? Oh, yes. For the longest time. Yes. I'm very proud of how young and beautiful she keeps herself. Oh, Michael really means that. Can you wonder why I think he's such a darling? Yes, well, at the risk of not being a darling, aren't you a little too old to be a freshman? Well, as long as Michael doesn't admit it, I won't. You mean Mr. Durain is a freshman here at Western State, too? Oh, yes, we're just starting. Both of us are here on the G.I. Bill of Rights. He was in the OSS. He can speak 17 languages, including North Manchurian. Show them, darling. Well, I'll Yeah, say. well, uh, now about those murder attempts <clears throat> on Professor Cooper. Oh, oh, he's my botany teacher. You see, I used to be in the whack, but I always really wanted to be a botanist. And I'm doing very well, too. Show them, darling. Well, you'd never think it. But plants range from the lower algae to the fungi. Mosses, liverworts, ferns, and gymnosperms. Isn't that terribly thrilling? Well, not as thrilling as murder, Mrs. Durain. You know that little thing you mentioned in your letter, remember? Oh, oh, yes, yes. You see, somebody has already tried to kill Professor Cobra several times. And no matter what John says, the things that happened to him weren't just accidents. No. Now, the time something went wrong with his car, and he nearly went off the cliff. All the time, somebody almost ran him down when he was crossing a corner. And other things like that. Well, is there any reason why anybody would want to get rid of the good professor? Why, don't you know? Hmm. John's almost succeeded in crossbreeding a terrestrial orchid with an epiphytic one. It'll be the most beautiful flower ever grown. And for that reason, someone wants to murder him? Of course. He's almost ready to report it to the Botanical Society. It's to be called Papilionaceous Corolla Louise. Think of it, Valentine. Louise, just a freshman majoring in botany, is going to have a flower named for her. Could a man want a greater compliment for his wife? Papillionaceous Corolla Louise as a motive for murder? Uh, Brooksy, I think we probably... Oh, you're not taking me seriously either, are you? I'm afraid you're taking botany a little too seriously, Mrs. Durant. Mother, I've got to talk to you. Darling, you might at least close the door. There's a terrible draft. It's... Is this your son? Who are these people? Well, your mother just happened to answer an ad, but we were going to leave anyway. Well, no, why should you? Everybody knows anyway. Knows what, Stephen? All right, I'll qualify it. Everybody knows, except you, my father. Please, dear, you're talking to your father. He knows that, my darling. Uh, George, wouldn't it be better if we were... Wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't know there was going to be a double feature. How do you think I feel on the campus when everybody knows I'm a sophomore and my mother and father are freshmen? Well, that is an interesting setup. Uh, tell me, Stephen, do you do your parents' arithmetic for them? This is no kidding. Mother, everybody's saying that you and Professor Cobra are that way about each other. They see you everywhere together. No son wants to hear that kind of talk about his mother. Oh, now, wait a minute, son. I'll have you understand your mother's a very attractive woman. Thank you, Michael. 
Oh, Stephen, I made some of that potato salad you like so much. It's in the refrigerator. Oh, it's no use talking to you two. Oh, oh, Mr. Valentine. We forgot all about Professor Coba. Did we? I thought he was very prominent in the conversation. Now, somebody is trying to kill him. Of course, Michael and Stephen won't believe it, but... But I do. Enough to want to hang around a while and see what this is all about. Miss Brooks, it's very considerate of the Phi Gamma Epsilon sorority to worry so strenuously about my husband. Well, naturally, when we girls heard about these threats on Professor Cobra's life, we just... I can just imagine what your hen parties must sound like. I hope your house mother doesn't listen in. Oh, oh, it wasn't just that, Mrs. Cobra. You see, with all this talk about Mrs... Oh, dear, what was I going to say? Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Why should you be? It's common knowledge on the campus that Mrs. Drain's been throwing herself at my husband. And all this talk about murder attempts has been a figment of this woman's weird imagination. Oh, and that's all there is to it. My husband leads a very sheltered academic life. He happens to be engaged in some experiments with flowers. That's hardly provocation for murder. Oh, no. No, I love flowers myself. True, he's very handsome for a botany teacher, but childishly unaware of his own charms. That's no cause for murder either. Of course not. However, if the professor were aware of his shaggy masculine attraction and were doing something about it... Yes? That might be a very understandable cause for murder. Ha! Huh. Good day, Miss Brooks. Believe me, Mr. Valentine, uh, these accidents that have been happening to Professor Kober are, well, just that, accidents. Yes, I know what you mean, Professor Farsworth, but I'm more interested in these experiments Kober's working on. And as head of the department and presumably his boss, uh, you ought to be able to give me that information. Of course. Uh, but I doubt if it could uh, possibly have much interest for the layman. Uh, Professor Kober is merely trying to create a new genus of the orchid family. Uh-huh. Of course, it'll probably be win the, the valuable American horticultural prize. A paper will be written on it, and a few thousand botanists throughout the world will thrill over it. And there will be some academic glory for Professor Kober and Western State University. Obviously, you have a great deal of respect for Professor Kober. I have. He's a true genius. I'm merely the head of the botany department. Uh, my particular talent is being able to get the money from the trustees so that men like Coburg can carry on the experiments and reap the glory. I see. Uh, there's only one thing we had any conflict about, uh, Coburg and I. Oh, what's that? Uh, the name he insists on giving this flower, the Papilionaceous Corolla Louise. Oh, the Louise part bothers you, eh? Mm. Yes, I can see that might lead to complications. No, Miss Brooks, Mr. Valentine, you're, you're not intruding at all. Any friend of Mrs. Durain's is always welcome in the greenhouse. Oh, John, I just can't wait till you show them our new flower. No, I, I can't wait either. I've heard so much about it. <laughs> well, uh, this way. I hate to sound like a tourist, Professor Cobra, but this greenhouse is more elaborate than any I've ever seen. <laughs> yes, isn't it, my dear? The most modern in the world. 
I designed it myself. And we have different rooms for every type of flower, don't we, John? And no end of gadgets. <laughs> Louisa's enthusiasm is a constant source of inspiration, but she is right. There is no end of gadgets. I'm afraid only Professor Bosworth and I know where they all are and what they are supposed to do. Yeah, please come in quickly so that I can close the door. Well, yeah, but uh, shouldn't we put on a light? Can't see a thing. Well, you see, we have no light at all in this room. I had it built especially for this experiment. Tell them why, John. It's awfully intriguing. Well, you see, light and cold are the two enemies of the papilionaceous corolla. Uh, the slightest fall in temperature would mean their death. Uh, that's why we have a thermostatic control. <laughs> Even that is well hidden in the back. But how did you get to see these beautiful specimens of yours, Professor? Well, uh, you will. In a minute, after you get used to the dark. George, I think I'm beginning to see them now. Look, can't you see them glowing? Yeah. Hey, they're really something. Mm-hmm. Worth every minute of the 12 years I've spent to get that unearthly perfection and color in the petals. John says it's nature, the most beautiful and dangerous thing thrive in the darkness. Did you say that, John? <laughs> well, I, I didn't put it as romantically as that, Louise. But with these flowers, it does seem that way. And another thing. You have only to touch them, and that glow comes right off on your fingers. And you can't get rid of it for days. Oh, that's very interesting. Well, now I'm afraid we'll have to get to work, Louise. We got that new soil preparation this morning. Uh, let's get on out where it's light. Oh, oh dear, and I left the seed chart in my car. I'll be right back, John. Don't oh, worry, my dear. I have to bring in the flats for those seedlings. Oh, uh, Mr. Valentine, why don't you and Miss Brooks stay and see how we work? Yes, Professor, thanks. That'll be fine. Oh, on the other hand, Brooksy, you stay here. I think I'll give the professor a hand. Okay, George. Here, you don't want to do that all alone. Oh, no need for you to bother, Valentine. I... Hey, Professor, look out. Get out of the way, Valentine! Oh, that was close. Are you all right? I... I wouldn't be if you hadn't pushed me out of the way. That boulder was coming straight at us. Yes, yes. Can you stand up? I, I think so. Oh, just a part of it went over my foot. George, what was that? I think you can see for yourself, Brooks. Oh, are you all right, George? Yes, yes, quite now, Louise. George, where are you going? Up this hill. See if this is another one of those accidents. Oh, I'll help you inside, George. Wait a minute, darling. Professor Coburn nearly got that boulder in the middle of his back. He was bending down over his precious seedlings, a perfect target. It must have fallen from here. Yeah, but it didn't just come loose, Brooksy. Look at this. Property of Western State University. Botanical department. Yeah, the shovel somebody used to spade up the dirt from under that rock. He had to do it to be able to push it down. You mean he or she, don't you? Yeah, Brooksy. What I want to know is, was that boulder meant for the professor? Or for me. We'll turn to tonight's adventure of George Valentine in just a moment. Here in the West, winter brings skiing, skating, and tobogganing to a lot of folks. But to the battery in your car, winter brings a heap of extra work. 
Colder mornings mean harder starting. Longer evenings mean more battery juice for lights. So why not give your battery a helping hand? Get real fast starts and extra power from it. Just pull in at an independent Chevron gas station or a standard station. Being experts at battery service, they can give it more pep than a pup in no time at all. If your battery's got one foot in the grave, they can supply you a new Atlas battery. Each Atlas battery has the number of plates and the certified capacity stamped right on the battery case. And the written warranty you get with a new Atlas battery is good at 38,000 stations seven days a week. For all your car's battery needs, rely on a standard station or an independent Chevron gas station where they say and mean, we'll take better care of your car. And now back to tonight's adventure of George Valentine. A huge boulder almost pins a college professor against a tree. Why? He's only interested in developing a new type of orchid. The incident itself is exciting enough, but if you're half as curious as Claire Brooks, what you really want to know is why your boss, George Valentine, thought something like this might happen. Remembering all the strange characters in the case, you're right on George's heels as he enters the Quonset hut on University Road. Anybody here? The drain seemed to be out, George. What do you want? What are you doing here? Oh, just looking for your father and mother, Stephen. We have something to talk about. Well, go on, find them. I can. Get up. Now, that's no way to talk, Stephen. Why not? Father's out somewhere quoting Homer. My mother's... Who knows where she is? Expect to walk in and find me in the best of humor? Now, listen to me, kid. I won't and take your hands off of me. I said listen to me. Your mother was right when she said someone is trying to kill Professor Coker. We saw it happen again this afternoon. And he's not dead? What's the matter? Why'd they make such a mess out of it? Okay, it's no use talking to you. By the way, when did you get home, Stephen? I don't see why I have to answer questions like that. Not to strangers. Now, get out of here! Oh, I really must apologize for my son's manners. Oh, Mr. Drain. We didn't hear you come in. No, I came in the back way. Did I hear you say something about another accident happening to Professor Coble? Yeah, you heard right. You needn't look at me that way. I was in the Hodgkin's library all afternoon reading Plato's Republic in the original Greek. And believe me, it wasn't easy. A cup of tea, Miss Brooks? Oh, no, I don't think so, thanks. Uh, it'd be a shame if anything happened to Professor Coble before he won that $50,000 prize. Is that how much the prize is worth? Oh, yes. Oh, I see you don't know your flowers, old man. Um, where's Louise? So she called and said she'd be working late again at the greenhouse. Oh, now look, Terrain, I'm as modern as the next guy, but don't you resent your wife spending so much time with another man? Oh, now, Louise happens to be fond of flowers. I'm imbued with the spirit of philosophy. But get one thing straight, Valentine. We're very much in love with each other. Nothing can alter that. Thanks. That makes a lot of things clear, Duran. It, it does? Sure, Brooksy. Now, come on. We're in a hurry. Let's have a look in the orchid room, Brooksy. I can't see a thing, George. Give yourself a chance. Remember the flowers that glow in the dark? Professor Cober? Huh? Huh? George! Something on the floor. I just tripped over. Just a minute. Who? Who is it? I don't know. I can hardly see. But I think it's the professor. I'm sure this is his talk. The one he wore this afternoon? Yeah. 
But it's not the professor. What? It's a woman. Louise? No. Well, let me see. It's... It's Mrs. Colvin, the professor's wife. Stabbed in the back with a pair of pruning shears. Oh, George, I can't look. I know. And about that theory of mine? Yes, dear? You don't have to worry about it anymore. This little piece of mayhem has knocked it all in a cocked hat. Well, where do we go from here? We go to the telephone and call Lieutenant Riley. Well, still running true to form, eh, Valentine? Uh, leave it to you to get murder all mixed up with the professor and flowers that glow in the dark. Oh, the trouble with you, Lieutenant, is that you think murder only happens to Mr. Average Man. Yep. I've got no imagination, Miss Brooks. Oh, I could imagine somebody trying to knock off Professor Cooper where there's a prize of 50 Gs lurking in the background, but... Why his wife? Because she happened to be wearing his coat. You know, somehow, Lieutenant, I hate putting things off until tomorrow morning. If that's supposed to be an aspersion on the efficiency of the homicide squad, it leaves me cold. What do you expect me to do, slap the whole drain to me in the can? No, not that, but... Both the father and the son could have had a gripe against the professor. And if Mrs. Cobra wasn't killed by a mistake, the least or the professor could have done it. Um, George, didn't you have a sort of special theory all cooked up before we found Mrs. Cobra? Oh, Brooksy, unlike the lieutenant, I wasn't hepped on the jealousy angle. Yeah. I go here as soon as I could after you called, Valentine. Oh, this is dreadful. Murder is never very wholesome. Oh, Dr. Bosworth, this is Lieutenant Riley of Homicide. Hi. Right. How do you do? Uh, when I talked to you before, Valentine, I was convinced that all this was just so much nonsense. But now I see how wrong I've been. Uh, oh, uh, Lieutenant. Yes, Doctor. Uh, uh, how can we go about keeping this as quiet as possible? Uh, you know how squeamish uh, uh, trustees are about bad publicity. Oh, that should be easy, Doctor. Uh, just what do you propose we do? Forget somebody was killed here tonight? Oh, no, 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 of course not. I, I suppose I'll just have to issue some dignified announcements. You make it sound like a wedding, Doctor. Now, I, I'd better go and speak to the dean. It's going to be a terrible shock to him after all the years he spent with his fault. Oh, oh, Valentine, you'll call me in the morning? Yeah, sure thing. We're going to be moving along now, too. Well, what about it, Valentine? Come on, let's get moving. I'm tired. I have to be at the morgue at 8 in the morning. Let's not worry so much about a night's sleep, eh, Lieutenant? What? It's my night's sleep you're talking about. As a tough-minded practical cop, I know you don't subscribe to the bromide so dear to the heart of mystery writers. Such bromides as? The murderer returning to the scene of the crime. Oh, no, no, not that one, Valentine. You're willing to wait it out and see? No. What do you take me for? Why, I wouldn't... Uh... You wouldn't what, Lieutenant? Her... I wouldn't dare take a chance on leaving now. The worst thing about waiting around in the dark is that you can't play gin rummy. Patience, Lieutenant. Well, if no one shows, darling, the dawn's going to come up like thunder on someone's very red face. Ooh, you and your subtleties. You know, I was talking to the commissioner the other day... And said I, boss, why bother about having a homicide squad when one man like George... Hey. Oh, what's that? What's that? Sounds like it comes from the other end of the green. This is my day off of Pat Answers. We'd better go and see. Wait a minute. Hold it, Valentine. Hold it. There's a lot of glass on the ground here. Yeah. Yeah, and whoever indulged himself in this bit of vandalism is off in that car. But we'll never catch up with him. 
Okay, Valentine. Something did happen, as you said it might. But what was it? The murderer. He came back to smash this thermostat, see? But take a chance like that on being caught, George. Just to smash the devil out of this gadget? A very important gadget, Lieutenant. It controls the temperature of the greenhouse. Of course. Professor Cobra's flower. Yes, and they're dying right now. Brooksy, you and the lieutenant have to keep that from happening. Me? What do I know about flowers? When in doubt, just ask Brooksy. Now, come on, come on, Miss Brooks. Look, look, fun is fun, but it, it, it's cold in here. Now, Lieutenant, let me have your shirt. Uh, you already took my jacket. These flowers have to be kept warm and covered. Uh, Even if we just save one of them, it'll mean something. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't see you giving up much for the cause. Lieutenant, please. Uh, for the love of Mike. Here. Take the shirt off my back. Oh, I just hope that Valentine knows what he's doing. We'll find out as soon as he gets back. In the meantime, we have to find something else to put around these flowers. Well, that's... Now, please, Miss Brooks. No, now, don't look at me that way. Please, I, I've done enough for the flower kingdom tonight. Oh, you're cute, Lieutenant. But I just happen to remember those burlap bags outside. All right, Valentine. We sit here in the dark in the... in the orchestra. Orchid room and the murderer is going to walk in this door and say, Here I am. Take me downtown. You won't have to say a word, Lieutenant, I hope. Okay, Brooksy, send them in one by one. You can start with Stephen. Oh, Stephen, will you come in? Why do we have to go through this? Hasn't my mother caused us enough trouble? You shouldn't be so critical of your mother, son. Now go over there and sit down. Mr. Durain, next, Brooksy. If you will, please, Mr. Durain. Isn't this kind of unusual, Valentine, all the darkness? Oh, but of course, as the philosophers have always understood, murder and darkness go together. Sit next to Stephen, will you? I think you can find your way. Yes, Mrs. Durain, next. Valentine, what are you doing? You're not even asking these people any questions. Mr. Durain, I'm so worried about Professor Cooper. He hasn't had a wink of sleep all night. Over there, Louise, please. Oh, ye gods. Go right in, please, Professor Coburn. Oh, my flowers. You did manage to keep them alive. Look at them. How they glow. How did you do it, Mr. Valentine? <laughs> well, I could tell you, Pat, but I won't. Sit there, Professor Coburn. Oh, Dr. Barnsworth, I think you can come in. I believe I know who our murderer is. I certainly hope so. And I have you to thank for the answer, Doctor. Me? Yes, sir. And I want to shake your hand. Of course, but... Uh... Hey, look at that guy's hand. The fingers, the way they shine. That's right. Well, what do you know? Look at his hand, John. It, it's the pollen from our flower. But, Bosworth, that couldn't be. You haven't been here for weeks. Oh, yes, he was. He had to be here when he killed Mrs. Cooper. <laughs> I never imagined Bosworth thought he'd kill the professor. Well, why else would he have said it would be such a shock to the dean? After all the years the old gentleman spent looking forward to... To the end of those experiments. <laughs> yeah, sure. With Cobra gone, Bosworth could finish his work and get all the glory. But first he had to kill those flowers. Then, using Cobra's notes, it would be easy. Mm -hmm. I noticed a faint glow on the thermostat control, even in the light. Well, I was too worried about who was getting away in that car. You see, only two men knew about those elaborate temperature controls in the greenhouse. 
and Cobra, the true scientist, would rather die than destroy his own brainchild. Well, that's that. But I don't know how I'll ever be able to feel the same way about a man who almost achieved immortality. Huh? What? Well, Professor Cobra was so grateful, he volunteered to call his sensational orchid the Papillionaceous Valentine. Oh, no. You too. You know I'm not as beautiful as the fair, Louise. Well, now, that's great. That's gratitude for you. It was my coat and my shirt that kept those flowers alive. Oh, he's right at that, George. All right, all right. From now on, between the three of us, it'll be the Papillionaceous Corolla Riley. Oh, gee. One of the first things a lady does when she's shopping for clothes is to touch the garment. She judges the texture by feeling it. The hand test will tell you a lot about Atlas Grip Safe tires, too. Next time you're at a standard station or an independent Chevron gas station, just press your palm on the tread of a new Atlas tire and feel how it grips your hand. Atlas tires on your car grip the road in the same way, thanks to their special non-skid tread design. That's how they give you quick, straight stops and why Atlas tires are safer on the turns. You can't buy safer driving for yourself and your family. And you can't find a better warranty than the written Atlas warranty. It's good at 38,000 stations in the 48 states in Canada, seven days a week. Why take chances in winter driving? Get Atlas Grip Safe tires tomorrow. Get them at any independent Chevron gas station or standard station where they say and mean we'll take better care of your car. Next week, when you tune our way for another adventure of George Valentine, you'll find George reading a letter from an old man who says... Dear Mr. Valentine, I wish to bestow a beautiful and precious gift upon a member of my family, the worthiest one, the rare Wittenberg Bible. You can help me. Kindly call Sunday morning when I can be sure that all of my little family will be home. Signed, Wesley Hart. Another problem for George. Next Monday night in... Murder, it's a gift. Adventure of George Valentine has been brought to you by Standard of California on behalf of independent Chevron gas stations and Standard stations throughout the West. Let George Do It stars Robert Bailey as George with Francis Robinson as Claire. Wally Mayer appears as Lieutenant Riley. Tonight's story was written by David Victor and Herbert Little Jr. and directed by Don Clark. Also heard in the cast were Lorene Tuttle as Louise, Jeff Chandler as Michael, Tommy Cook as Stephen, Ted Funnels as Cober, Bay Baker as Lenore, and Herb Rawlinson as Bosworth. The music is composed and conducted by Eddie Dunstetter. Your announcer, John Heaston. Listen again next week, same time, same station, to Let George Do It. 
This is the Mutual Don Lee Broadcasting System. The Flowers That Smelled of Murder, an episode of Let George Do It from the day after Halloween in 1948 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. There's an anniversary that we'd like to celebrate tonight, one that took place just a few days ago. It's the centennial of the writer, producer, aviator, police officer, and most important, the creator of Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry, born on August 19, 1921. If you're a Trekkie, then you know much more about Mr. Roddenberry than I do, including the fact that he wrote for such television series as Highway Patrol and Have Gun Will Travel. But did you know that that latter credit also made him a radio writer at one point, at least nominally, because Unlike the dozens of radio shows that became TV series, Have Gun Will Travel is the only title that went the other way, becoming a radio series after its success on the tube. A number of Mr. Roddenberry's television scripts were adapted for the audio-only medium, and, as co-producer Jill points out, you can get a real sense of his storytelling style. In this episode, instead of exploring unknown worlds, Mr. Roddenberry has his hero exploring unknown towns out west. The tale is called Road to Wickenburg, and it comes from November 30th, 1958, CBS, and the series Have Gun, Will Travel. There are four of you gentlemen... I've only one bullet left in my Derringer, so my choice is very simple. I'll kill the first man who speaks. Have Gun, Will Travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. through. I haven't made up my mind yet. What's the name of this town? We call her Bluebell. Looking for a job? <laughs> Just a drink. And they'll give you one in there if you can pay for it. Thank you, Sheriff. <laughs> What'll it be, Hoppergrass? Uh, rye. Just give me the bottle in the glass. That'll be five dollars. Uh, must have worked up quite a thirst, stranger. <laughs> I'll get you a better brand than the bar bottle. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Uh, this'll do. Yeah, it oughta. Mm-hmm. You're the one that belongs to that black horse outside? That's right. Nice animal. Uh, 
you care for a drink? Uh, no, thanks. And I got a piece of advice for you, stranger. I wouldn't drink any of that. I already have. Why? Get along, Sue. Customer's waiting for you at the ferro. No, just a minute. There's a customer right here at the bar. I said get. See you around, mister. Now, look, I... Kind of careless, stranger. Yeah. What was in that drink? Whiskey, mister. That's all they sell. Well, I... I asked you a question. And I'm giving you an answer. Who are you? That's who I am. Remember me? You're in my place. Remember what happened? In a way. I slipped enough drugs in your drink to kill a horse. Here, can you sit up? Uh, ooh, I felt better. Pretty stupid, mister. Flashing a thick roll of bills. Oh, I'm gone. Sure. <laughs> no Barbary Coast trick. How come you fell for it? No excuse. I was careless. Man's always got an excuse for everything. Every one of you is handsome and clever. Been everywhere, broke a hundred hearts. You've all got the same high opinion of yourselves. Well, that's the... Ooh. Ooh, my ribs. He tried to finish you off with his boot. Who did? Saul Goodfellow. Saul Good. I'll remember. Here, you need this. <laughs> my derringer. Saul missed something else when he searched her. His card, a gun, will travel. I like the sound of that. Will you kill him? He took a thousand dollars from me, took my gun, my holster, and I suppose my horse went along, too. You suppose right. Will you kill him? <laughs> Would you care? I felt Saul's boot, too. You know, I have a lot to thank you for can thank me by letting me go with you. It's the only way I can leave this town. What's your name? Sue Tyler. Sue? You can pack whatever you want. I'll take you as far as Wickenburg. But I'm going to see Mr. Goodfellow before I leave. town, stranger? Sheriff, when I came here this morning, I had a horse, a gun, and a thousand dollars. I intend to leave the same way. You saying somebody stole your money? What's his name? Saul Goodfellow. I just can't go along with that. Just tell me where I can find him. That won't be hard to do. You just called my brother a thief. I'm Jack Goodfellow. Next thing you'll be saying is that Cousin Jim there doctored your drink. Howdy. Or that maybe our Uncle Ed over there has your horse and your saddlebag. Howdy, mister. Seems to be your town. Sort of a family affair, but... Sal! Sal, come here. What? Well, I hear's making a complaint against you. That's the truth. 
I'll trouble you for my gun and my money. What are you talking about? That gun in your holster. Money in your pocket. So? Ask him why don't he just take him. That's the gun you say I took, mister? That's the gun. I'll tell you what. I'm going to take five bullets out of this here gun. See? Then I'm going to throw them away. Like this. Now, I got one shell left in here. And I'm going to kill you with this one bullet if you try to take his gun. So, come on, take it. If you can, mister. Hand it over. <laughs> You'll be dead before you can draw the hammer back. That's so. Where'd you get that danger? Come on, you stay back and hold two shots. Now who wants the second one? All right. I'll take my gun. My money. There's only two hundred. I see you each took a share. Drop your gun belt. Don't do it. He killed Sal, but we got four guns, and he's only got one bullet left in that derringer. One's better than none. We got him. When I say three, draw. One. If you say two, I'll kill you. Keep count. I'll kill the next man who speaks. Yeah, it's true. She's going to run us down. Get her! Whoa, whoa, come on. Come on, get boy. All right. Yeah. All right, give me those lines and get down low. Thanks. You know, for a girl, you drive pretty well. Better head to the river. They're coming after you. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, we'll stop here. Give me a bag. Oh, I can carry my half. <laughs> I've noticed that. Well, let me help you now. By the time they backtrack, it'll be dark. We'll spend the night here. Can I see that Derringer a minute? Well, here. I'm going to take a bath in the river. Got three years of bluebell to wash out of my skin. And if you so much as look that way... I'll kill you. <laughs> you pull that trigger and you'll show four rifles our hiding place. Come on, give it to me. Come on. Thanks. Um, you have your bath and... All right. Uh, I'll try to find some supper. Rabbit smells good. Mmm. Ain't you afraid of showing smoke? No. Dry mesquite doesn't smoke. Oh. Yeah. I'd help you cook supper. I washed my clothes. They're dry and I... I got to stay in this blanket. Sit down. Any side of them when you was out catching the dinner? No. How come we spend the night here? Seems darkness might be the best time to run for Wickenburg. Well, the moon rises in an hour. It'll be almost as bright as day. That's all? I want them to tire their horses searching for us tonight. See, ours will be fresh in the morning. We may be able to outrun them, but 
We sure can't outfight them with one bullet. Ain't got no other reason in mind for us staying here? No. Where do you go after Wickenburg? Back to San Francisco. Paladin. Do you have a wife or anything? No. Take me with you. I'm pretty. Dressed up right, no man would be ashamed of me. I'm, I'm healthy and strong. I'm no lily-handed lady that expects more than she's willing to give. I'm not asking for the cinder cut of your life. Go as you please and do as you please. Just say something nice to me now and then. That's all I ask. Think about it until we get to Wickenburg. You're... You're something besides pretty. What does that mean? Mm. I'll tell you in Wickenburg. When a cloud bursts, and fresh, clean rain falls on a grove of rich, green pine. It's mmm, so nice. And now, that same clean scent of pine is in new pine-scented Lysol. Right. Now the one and only genuine Lysol brand disinfectant comes in a new pine scent. It disinfects, deodorizes, as nothing else does, kills disease germs on contact. In laboratory tests, Lysol's anti-germ action kept working for seven full days. A bottle costs as little as 29 cents, and it's so easy to use. Just add new pine-scented Lysol to your suds when you clean in bathroom, kitchen, nursery, sick room. Use pine-scented Lysol because Lysol deep cleans. Make your home... Pine, sweet, and Lysol clean. You can still get regular Lysol, too. <laughs> longer. Another two hours, we ought to be in Wickenburg. What's the matter? There's somebody up ahead there. Hey, you there! Paladin, use the whip. There's no need. He isn't armed. Ooh. 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 Hey, how about a ride to Wickenburg? What's the matter? Oh, I've been rustled, or whatever you call it. Just because one of their horses had thrown a shoe, they took mine right out of the traces. Four men? Yes. How'd you know? Who are you? Peter Keystone, hide and tell a buyer from New York. For who? For my father. He owns the plant. I need a gun. Is there one in your rig there? Well, that's one on your hip, isn't it? It's empty. Have you got one or ammunition? What's going on? Those four asked me the same question. Those men you saw, the one who took your horse, they're after us. They'll kill me. Kill you? A pretty girl like you? Quiet. Have you got a gun? There's a repeating rifle under the seat and some shells to go with it. Well, just a minute now. I didn't say... I know you didn't. What are we going to do? 
down the road. Come up and cover. Yeah, I see them. They don't know we have a gun. What's going on? Just stay down. And stay right here, both of you. But I... You stay with me, Mr. Keystone. Yeah, stay with her. I'm going to work my way up towards them. Paladin, we got you cut off. Ain't no sense in trying to fight us with one bullet. What are we waiting for? With that Derringer, he ain't got no range. Get him, he's got a rifle. Oh, no, hold on. need a doctor. Come out with your hands up. Sure. Sure, but don't shoot me. Don't shoot now. That's far enough. Now, get the rest of my money and throw it on the ground. Stand back. What are you going to do to me? You go get my wagon and drive it up here and load those wounded men on it. Your wagon's gone. My... What? Her and that other fellow took off in it. All right, Mr. Goodfellow, hitch one of your horses onto his rig. It's better than nothing. I want to get to Wickenburg. You know, in New York, I never saw anyone just like you. I think... Oh. Hello. Mr. Keystone? Hello. Good afternoon. Mister, I, I didn't want to jump in that rig and run, but I was thinking of Sue here. Yeah. A gentleman always considers a lady first. The question is, what does a lady consider first? It was your fight, not his or mine. But I'm sure glad you came out all right. Well, what are you looking at me for? I ain't done nothing wrong. No, of course not. But this is Wickenburg. I promised you an answer to something here. You've got some kind of lies to spread. Go ahead. Men are always lying. Sue. Well, not you, but most of them. All I have for you, Miss Tyler, is an expression of gratitude. For the third and last time in our casual relationship, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Keystone. Wait a minute. Don't go, Mr. Paladin. Let him go. He pretends to be such a gentleman. He's just a, a gunfighter, like I told you. I hardly know him. I, I saw through him right from the first. That's odd. Just now I have a feeling he's looking right through you. Well, look. Don't let him change our plans. You promised to take me to New York with you. Where are you going? Maybe we better talk some more about New York. Later. Well, what now, Paladin? You're very pretty, Miss Tyler. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> 
Have Gun, Will Travel. Created by Herb Meadow and Sam Rolfe, is produced and directed by Norman McDonald and stars John Daner as Paladin with Ben Wright as Hayboy. Tonight's story was written by Gene Roddenberry and adapted for radio by John Dawson. Featured in the cast were Lynn Allen, Jack Edwards, Vic Perrin, Harry Bartell, Frank Gerstel, and Eve McVeigh. Hugh Douglas speaking. Join us again next week for Have Gun, Will Travel. Roddenberry story, Road to Wickenburg, that appeared twice on Have Gun, Will Travel, first on television, and then adapted for that radio version that appeared on Thanksgiving weekend in 1958. Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, who passed away in 1991, would have turned a hundred years old last Thursday. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arold Bailey. Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. I mentioned earlier tonight that as the school year begins, we need to remember that teachers are heroes and never have they been more so than during these past difficult months. To put it in perspective, though, we have a drama that looks at a schoolteacher during an even more stressful time. It's set in Europe in World War II, and it's the radio adaptation of one of the most highly regarded films of the war, the director Jean Renoir's This Land is Mine. It was a hit, it won an Academy Award, and it starred Charles Lawton, and Maureen O'Hara. We'll hear Mr. Lawton recreate his screen triumph opposite a different Maureen, Maureen O'Sullivan. The war was still raging when this story was broadcast, just six weeks before the D-Day invasion. You'll hear a public service announcement urging people to recycle fats for the war effort. If they did, they'd receive extra red ration points. Blue ration points were for canned, bottled, and dry foods. The red points were for meat, fish, and dairy products, if you could find them. Imagine yourself during World War II, sitting at home on the evening of Sunday, April 23, 1944, listening to CBS and this edition of the Lux Radio Theater, starring Charles Lawton in This Land is Mine. Lux presents Hollywood. 
Radio Theater brings you Charles Lawton and Maureen O'Sullivan in This Land is Mine with Edgar Barrier. Tonight, the Lux Radio Theater comes to you from Hollywood as usual, but your producer speaks to you from Little Rock, Arkansas. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Greetings from Arkansas, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, I'm not far from the geographical center of the United States. In fact, right in the middle of the Lux Radio Theater audience. I've come here to join the people of Arkansas and Little Rock in paying tribute to one of their own. The story of Dr. Wassell with Gary Cooper as the screen hero is having a formal opening here in Little Rock because Dr. Wassell was, was an Arkansas country doctor before romance and adventure called him halfway around the world. The Arkansas countryside is the scene of some of the picture. And perhaps it's the origin of the high courage that carried a good plain American to world fame. This is the kind of an occasion that reaffirms one's faith in America. This war belongs to the ordinary people of the world. And there are those in the darkened countries of Europe who carry on the fight too. Tonight's drama is about these soldiers without uniform. The army of the underground which waits for the greatest day of our time. The Day of Liberation. Our play is the RKO hit, This Land is Mine. And we have the same distinguished artist you saw in the picture, Charles Lawton. And co-starring with Charles tonight is lovely Maureen O'Sullivan. I've looked forward to every new Lawton play or picture since I first saw Charles act 13 years ago. That was on a stage in London. And it was evident that night that a brilliant new star had found a place in the theater. Later, he came to America and gave a fine performance for me as Nero in The Sign of the Cross. Crossing the nation this week, I found a great interest in the inner workings of the Lux Radio Theater, a curiosity about the way the wheels of radio drama go round. But one thing you all seem to understand is the fact that Lux makes the whole enterprise possible. There were questions about your favorite stars and requests for certain plays and pictures. Some of you, some of you even picked actual seats in this theater and visualized the play from an imaginary eighth-row center. Each time I make one of these trips, I feel a little closer to the people who gather with us on Monday night. And because Lux Flakes has stood for top performance in its field for so many years, I get quite a, quite a kick out of being greeted wherever I go as that Lux man. And now... Across the country, we raise the curtain on the first act of This Land is Mine, starring Charles Lawton as Albert Lorry and Maureen O'Sullivan as Louise Martin, with Edgar Barrier as Major Von Keller. In the gazetteer of war, the town in our play is without significance. Stalingrad or Lidice, our names for the history books, Rotterdam and Coventry. It is enough to say our scene is somewhere in Europe. Nor will future generations identify the people of our play. Their names, too, in a world crammed with heroes and madmen, are only drops of water in a rushing river. We're concerned tonight only with what people did, with their capacities for glory and for shame. So easily, they might have been ourselves. From the diary of Albert Laurie. I've been a failure. 
My 40 years have been full of fears and confusion. People, the world, and the minds of men have left me spent and ignorant. I'm a schoolteacher by profession. In this little town, I've found my refuge. Yes, refuge. Though the boys I teach tend to hoot and laugh at me, so apparent is my weakness of will. If I've never been completely happy, it is equally true I've never been completely unhappy. Resolute and enduring are my books. God has spared my mother. And there is Louise. Louise Martin. She's also a teacher. As long as she's here, nothing else matters. From the diary of Albert Laurie, April 5th, 1941. Two weeks ago, the Germans seized our town. They came without violence. It has become evident the Nazis wish to be friendly. Now, this morning, for instance, a German soldier knocked at our door. He left a procl proclamation freshly printed. Well, well, what does it say? Read it, Albert. All public offices will function as heretofore without German interference, including law enforcement and the school system. Mother, they let us alone. Did you hear that? The school system? Yes, what else, uh, Albert? However... Any incident directed against the forces of occupation will come under the direct jurisdiction of the Commandant, Major von Keller. Please cooperate and help keep our civilian life free. Signed, Henry Manville. Man. All right. Finish your breakfast, Albert. You'll be late for school. Yes, Mother. I have a surprise for you, darling. Look. Milk? How did you get it? The doctor gave me a prescription. Oh, are you sick? Oh, have I ever been well ever since you were born? Here, yeah, Mother, you can. You know, you know I can't stand Luke. But there's no reason why you shouldn't. What's that? I heard a noise. It's probably just Louise's cat from next door. She should keep her filthy cat at home. All night long at... <gasps> Mother. Under the door. Look. It's just a paper, Mother. I'll get it. Why don't they knock? Why do they sneak things under the door? But it's nothing. It's only a... Liberty. Oh. It says liberty. Citizens. Unless the conquerors are driven out of our land, it means generations of slavery. We must resist. Let each of us say to himself, this land is mine. Troublemaker. This is dangerous, Mother. I, I'd better burn it. In the kitchen. Quick, quick. And do down Someone we have a visitor, Mother. No, no. It's just Louise's cat in our window, Sue. Chase him off. Chase him. As soon as I burn the paper, Mother. Just hurry, Albert. You'll be late. Albert, good morning. Morning, Paul. That our cat you've got there? Oh, so you have to run away. Hmm. I've been looking all over for that cat. Here, Louise. She's probably been annoying your mother again. They're very fond of your cat, Louise. Paul, aren't you late for work? Oh, just got through fixing my bicycle. Flat tire. I guess it'll hold till I get to the railroad yards. We'll be late too, Albert. Fine example to set for our pupils. Wait a second. Look, Albert. Come for dinner tonight. Yes, do. There'll be just us and George Lambert. George is bringing the dinner. Pigeons. My boss is so crazy about Louise, he even chases pigeons for her. Oh. Pigeons? Sure. George has some traps on the roof of the freight office. Will you come, Albert? Oh, thank you. But my mother, you see, she doesn't like to be left alone. You know, she's not very oh, well. Oh, I'm sorry. Look, Albert, have you seen this? Oh, Paul, don't be crazy. Liberty. Uh, yes, I burned our copy. Watch out. Hide it. Quick. Hmm? Why? Can't you see? Just turning the corner. Two soldiers. Oh, I can't hide this. Hey, Aunt. Yeah. 
Want to read something? What is it? Something that should interest you. Here, let me see, Paul. Here. Where did you get this? Under our front door. Uh, we find many like this already, Paul. If you find any more, please tell us. Sure. You? Yeah, yes, sir. And eat your house? My house? Oh, no, no. Come along, Carl. Thank you, Paul. Keep in touch with us. Sure. Paul, do you know these soldiers? Well, what if I do? They're just doing their job. And are you doing yours? Look, why just pick on me? You don't say anything to George. Well, goodbye, you two. Come on, Albert. Walk fast now. Yes, Louise. So I thought it best that I come here to school myself, Professor Sorrell, and tell you about it. And these books of mine must be burned, Mr. Mayor? Yes. I think it very wise if I take them. Juvenile. Tacitus. Voltaire. Plato's Republic. Oh, I'm so sorry we were told that Professor Sorrell won. Come in, Laurie. Come in. Miss Martin? Good morning. I... I'm just leaving. Goodbye, Professor. Goodbye, Mr. Manville. Is anything wrong? It is beginning, Laurie. Our books must undergo alterations. History, geography, and literature. Pending the arrival of new books, you will go to your classrooms and have the children tear out certain pages from our present books. Oh, why do they make us do this? Why don't they bring in German teachers and get it all over oh, with? Don't be upset, Louise. After all, school will continue. Now, if you have pencils, please note the deletions. In your history books, chapter one. Destroy pages seven and eight. Seven and eight? Pages 15 and 16. Mm. 21 and 22. Chapter 2. I was back in my classroom making the deletions when the air raid alarm suddenly shrieked and the fearful drone of approaching bombers filled our ears. The planes were British and with each explosion I should have uttered a prayer of thanks. But instead, I became hysterical. Before a hundred students, before Professor Sorrell and Louise, I shook and I wept and I moaned. Well, the boys laughed and mocked me, but I just couldn't help it. I can't stand violence and noise. I'm a coward and I'm a weakling. And now they all know it. Even she. Well, after the raid, Professor Sorrell sent for me. Close the door, Laurie. I know what you're going to say, so I'm ridiculous. I'm stupid, but I... These raids are new to us, Laurie. After a while, we'll get accustomed to them. I'll never change. Would you like to transfer to a safer district? Oh, no, no, sir. Because of Miss Martin? Yes, sir. I see. Does she know how you feel? No. Oh, goodness, I thought you were a confirmed bachelor. Sit down, Laurie. You know, in a time like this, I believe we're the most important people in the country. Yes, sir. This morning we were told to mutilate our books. But we contain those books. And they can't destroy the truth without destroying us. Oh, we may seem weak to the children now. We have no weapons. We don't march. But it's part of our fight to teach the children to admire us. So we can really lead them. Maybe we'll win, Laurie. Or maybe we'll be shot. Professor. Oh, no, my friend. I don't ask you to die. What do you think these things over? Professor Sorrell. In here, Victor. What is it? There's been a wreck at the railroad yard. Supply chain. So... It begins already. They'll take hostages now, even if it was an accident. Hostages? You hear, Laurie? Now we've got to be strong. When the wreck occurred, Paul Martin, at Louise's brother, was on duty in the switch tower, and Major von Keller questioned him there. The cable is broken, sir. I see. 
You know nothing about it, of course. Oh, no, sir. It seemed all right when I pulled it just before the wreck. The cable was cut, Martin. Yes, sir. But as far as you and I know, it was an accident. Accident? Yes. You understand? Yes, Well, later in the afternoon, Louise hurried to the railroad yard. She went to George Lambert's office. It was only natural she should go to George. They were engaged to be married. Oh, what a mess, darling. I'm afraid I'm in for some trouble. After all, I'm the superintendent. Thank goodness no one was killed. But I can't understand how it happened. The chances are Von Keller will hold me accountable. George, I'm sorry. That's unselfish, but I was thinking about myself. Something happened at home this afternoon that I can't understand. What, Louise? Well, I went to the market. I was gone nearly two hours. And when I got home, the house had been searched. Oh, excuse me, Lambert. Oh, oh, please come in, sir. Uh, Major Von Keller, Miss Martin. I wanted to talk with you alone, George. Well, I'll see you later. Oh, please, Miss Martin. Uh, Lambert, she wants to ask you about some pages she lost. Not lost, Major. Stolen. Pages? What pages? We had suggested some slight changes in the text of our school books, Lambert. Miss Martin made the deletions, but she unwisely took the pages home and we confiscated them. You see, we protect the people we like from their own indiscretions. I found out what I wanted to ask you, George. Oh, goodbye. I'll see you tonight. Oh, forget it, Lambert. We have more important things to discuss. I have decided that the wreck was an accident. Well, I wouldn't call it an accident, Major. Neither would I. It was obviously sabotage. I knew as soon as they began circulating that illegal newspaper, Liberty, that we'd have trouble. Find the men who print it and you'll find your saboteurs. I prefer not to use the word saboteur. What? If we call it sabotage, I shall have to take hostages. And I shall have to shoot the hostages later if the guilty are not found. Once you begin with that, you're sitting on a keg of dynamite. Then what do we do about it? We keep our ears open. You are in touch with all the men who work here. You think they'll tell me anything? They regard me as an enemy. For a while yet, they will continue to regard me too as an enemy. Well, if I thought you were, I wouldn't be doing what I am. I am here to help men like you to rebuild your own country. Remember what Germany was like before the Fuhrer? But the people were not bad. They were only waiting to be told the truth. And German blood will flow until that truth is given to all the world. Believe me, Major, I want the new order for my country, but I I must be honest. We don't like the occupation. But neither do I. Well, I'm glad we understand each other. We will both work to end this war. And then will your country and men like you regain your honor. Yes, it's the only way. The only way. Today, ten days after the wrecking of the supply train, there was a sudden raid by the German intelligence. Four men printing copies of the illegal newspaper were seized. A crowd quickly gathered on the street, and as soon von Keller's car arrived. With him was our mayor. They watched the Nazis take their prisoners, and then, as they started to drive away... Someone threw a bomb. And two Nazi soldiers were killed. The guards caught a fleeting glimpse of a man on the rooftops across the street. They shot, but the man escaped. Paul? Paul, is that you? Yes. Oh, Paul has been trouble. Did you hear the shooting? Yes, I heard it. Someone threw a bomb and... Oh. Nothing, Louise. It barely scratched my arm. You. It was you. Yes. Oh, Paul. Paul, why didn't you tell me? I was going to tell you sometime soon, Louise. Oh, this bandage. Do you mind? Oh, Paul. Paul and I thought you that thought you I were... was with them. Oh. No, it was simply more convenient for people to think so, Louise. 
I've fought them since the day they came here. That wreck at the railroad yard? That was you too? That was easy. Oh, Paul, if they shot you, that means they saw you. They recognized they you. They weren't close enough. Only one person saw me. Next door, Mrs. Laurie. I cut across their yard. I was holding my arm, but I don't think she made any special notice of me. Oh, Paul, I'm so proud of you. I can believe in you again. Paul, my brother. All right, now. Just take it easy and get this bandage on. He got away? Wasn't even recognized? That's right, Mayor. Well, have you any suggestions? Remember, the attempt was made upon your life as well as mine. What about the princess you arrested? I'm afraid you don't understand your own people. Well, we had them in Germany, too. They will die, but they will tell nothing. Well, we shall have to take hostages. I hate to begin it, but two German soldiers have been killed. Hostages? For the train wreck, my superiors accepted apologies. This time, they want hostages. Well, here is a copy of the paper we found on the printing press. You should study it. It has a classical flavor. Listen. They make a desert, and they call it peace. Now, who wrote that name? But writing shows scholarship. Wait a minute. Those books. Books? What books? The books you found on Professor Sorel's desk. Yes. Here we are. Plato, Voltaire, Juvenal, Tacitus, Tacitus. Will be solid pseudonym Fortune Parkham Appella. You recognize it? Uh, Greek? It's Latin. Tacitus is referring to the Roman occupation. They make a desert, and they call it peace. Well, we've got it. You've got what? Surely you don't suspect Sorrell. He'd never make an attempt on my life. Of course not, my dear mayor. Of course not. No, stop it! Get off, please! Let me alone! Boys! Boys, what are you doing? Answer me. Very well, get back to your desk. I'm very disappointed in you. This is a place of culture, and the first requisite of culture is good manners. Edmund Sorrell? Yes, sir. What's that on your face? Isn't that a letter, Jay? They say I'm a Jew. Who did it? I... I don't know, sir. Go to the washroom, Edmund, and clean your face. Mr. Laurie, please come quickly. Miss Martin, what is this? Professor Sorrell, they're arresting him. I heard you. My father. But they can't take him. They can't. Father, father, father. Professor Sorrell. Professor Sorrell. Get back. Stand aside. It's all right, Laurie. It's all right. Don't leave us, Professor. We can't run the school without you. Dignity, Laurie. You'll have to run the school now. Get away from that door. Let go. You can't take him. I won't let you. Oh, I warned you. Ow! Father. It's all right, son. Don't worry. I'll come back. Goodbye. Take them away. Edmund, my father. You're a brave boy, Edmund. Albert? They took him away and I did nothing. Oh, you did all you could do, Albert. And you weren't afraid. They took him away and I did nothing. In just a moment, Charles Lawton and Marino Sullivan return in Act Two of This Land is Mine. Now that so many husbands and fathers are being called into the service, many families are doubling up. In the Howard family, for instance, the married daughter, Jean, has come home and is unpacking in her old room. Here, let me help, Jean. You go ahead with the trunk and I'll unpack your suitcase. 
Let's see now. Where do you want your slips, dear? Uh, second drawer, I think, Mother, in the middle. Why, gee, what in the world happened to these? There's hardly any color left in them. I know, and I haven't had them very long either. Goodness, even the sacks are frayed. I'll see if I can put some new ones on for you. Oh, thanks, Mum, but don't bother. I'll have to get some new slips. Gracious, child. These days, you ought to take better care of your things. By the way, I put some Lux flakes in the bathroom so you can do your undies upstairs. Oh, I'm not fussy. Anything will do. Oh, you mean you haven't been using Lux? Well, no. So, that's it. Strong soaps aren't fit for these nice things, Jeannie. If my grocer gets out of Lux Flakes, I just keep asking until he gets some more in. I wouldn't take chances with anything else. Actual washing tests prove Mother is right. Slips and nightgowns, which were given Lux care, were color fresh, lovely, after 30 Luxings. But harsh wash day methods left the same kind of slips badly faded. Straps were frayed. Seams pulled out, too. Now, when it's so important to make things last, don't risk rough handling, too hot water, strong soaps. As we say it with music, undies lead a long life when they lead a luxe life. Now, here's Act Two of This Land is Mine, starring Charles Lawton as Albert Laurie and Maureen O'Sullivan as Louise with Edgar Barrier as Major von Keller. From the diary of Albert Lorry, Professor Sorrell was not the only hostage. They took seven other men and two women. I returned to the school. I couldn't think. I simply dismissed all classes and went home. Well, Louise tried to pleading with Von Keller, but that was no use. And then she went to the railroad yards to George them. Von Keller says it'll all be shot, George. Shot? Let the guilty man give himself up. George, maybe of you saw Von Keller. He likes you. He said that? He said he'd be worried about me if it weren't that I were going to be married. But a very reliable man. I see. Oh, George, I'm so frightened. I don't know what to do. Look, darling, nothing will happen for at least a week, and by then they'll find the man who threw the bomb, and all the hostages will be released. But you don't understand. You see, the man who... Oh, George, I'm in such an awful spot. Well, whoever it was, if he has a spark of courage or decency in him, he'll give himself up and save these innocent people. You think he's a criminal? Louise, we must face facts. If one of us wants to resist openly and get killed, that's foolish, but, well, it's courageous. But the man who secretly resists with acts of sabotage is a coward. He escapes and the innocent die. You mean anyone who resists them should give himself up? That's exactly what I mean. But if that's surrender. Well, we'd have peace. What becomes of a nation if its citizens all die? Professor Sorrell isn't afraid to die. But he's old. We are young. I know young men who aren't afraid to die. Nothing is worth the sacrifice of your life, Louise. We have everything before us. Love, marriage, children. No, no, no. Please, George. Louise. Oh, George. I was in love with you once. Perhaps I'm still in love with you. But as you were talking just now, I felt as though I'd never looked at you before. Darling, you're upset. Oh, you don't have... I know I'm upset. But this is the first time you've been completely frank with me. Everything that's happened, I'm so confused. I haven't found the answer yet to the things you've said, but I feel... I know you're wrong. George, don't be angry, but I, I've got to leave now. I've got to leave. <laughs> At 
two days later, Louise invited me to have dinner with her and Paul. We waited for Paul to come home, but he was very late. I don't understand. What's keeping him? Louise, I have something to tell you. You're worried, aren't you? Is it your mother? Oh, I know she doesn't like me. She didn't want you to come here, did she? Well, Oh, I understand, her, but she's old and she's lonely. Look, you don't have to stay. You can go home. Thank you, Louise. Louise, I must speak to you. Yes? I know I'm not young. And you're so very young in my mind. You know, I remember the day you graduated. And I was already teaching then. And I remember the day you first came back to teach your class. And I was so worried about you. And so happy when I saw how the children loved you. Oh. And now, now we're the only ones left in the school. And I feel so very close to you. What's that? It must be an air raid. Oh, but they want to be cleaned. It sounded as if it came from the railroad yard. Paul! Paul, what are you... Listen very closely. Sit down at the table, Arthur. We've all been here having dinner. Understand? I've been here for an hour. But I don't understand. We'll all be searching here any minute. You've got to help me, Arthur. If they ask questions, you and Louise and I have been having dinner since I came home an hour ago. Put a little of this on your plate, as though you've eaten the rest. Good. I was going to go home. Here, have a cigarette. But I, I, I don't smoke. It's easy. Just breathe in. <coughs> Come in. Okay, we have to search the place. That's you, Hans? What's wrong? What were those explosions? Ammunition train blown up. Anyone come in here? Oh, not a soul. And you? You live here? No. What are you doing here, then? Oh, you're just Mr. Larry from next door. He was having dinner with us. I, I don't smoke. He's the schoolmaster. I just gave him his first cigarette. Answer me, schoolmaster. How long have you been here? Since six o'clock. Who else was here? Well, Louise was here, I mean... Miss Martin. And my brother, Paul. I'm asking him. <coughs> Who was here? He was here. You're sure about that? Yes. And you, Paul? You're sure he was here all this time? I'm sure. He's sweet on my sister. Albert! Albert! That's my mother. I live next door. Please, I must go to her. Why not? But we'll go together. Go along, schoolmaster. Get out of my house. Where do you think you are? In Germany? I told you we have to search all these houses. What's in this cabinet? Get your dirty hands off. Oh, oh, my best china. You love it. You see it. Look what you did. Albert. I'm sorry, lady. Mother. What's the matter here? Albert, my best china. Look, he's nasty. No, mother, mother. The brute, the dirty brute. Robert. Yes, sir. Are you satisfied, madame? Do you wish me to strike him again? No, you're a brute, too. Get out. Both of you, get out. Albert! <laughs> After the blowing up of the ammunition train, they took more hostages. At breakfast time, they came for me. My poor mother fought them like a tigress. They pushed her, they knocked her down, but they couldn't stop her. Word came to me even in prison of how during the next three days she stormed outside the mayor's office demanding that he see her. But it was useless. The mayor said he was too busy. I can't help it if the mayor wouldn't see you. This is the railroad office. Tell Mr. Lambert it's Mrs. Laurie. I demand to see Mr. Lambert. Once and for all, Mr. Lambert is very busy. He cannot see you. Is he in there? Yes, he's in there. Then watch. Really, Mrs. Laurie. George Lambert, you listen to me. You're king, madame. Thank you. You know what they've done to my poor Albert. I'm very sorry. Sorry, you're going to do something about it. Oh, come in, Mrs. Larry. Sit down. You sit down and listen to me. If the guilty man is found, all hostages are released. Is that so? Of course. Then pay attention. If 
day that bomb was thrown, I was at my window. I saw a man climb over the fence and come across my yard. I recognized the man. He was holding his arm. That man... That's the story as Mrs. Laurie told it to me only half an hour ago. Well, you've done your duty. You can expect to be well rewarded if Paul Martin is the man. I don't want a reward, Mayor. Believe me, this was very difficult for me to do. You're saving lives. Laurie's life. Sorrell's, all of them. Sorrell's a radical. They won't release him and you know it. The thing that makes me boil is how Paul fooled me all the time. Making friends with a German. It's one thing I cannot stand, hypocrisy. They call me a hypocrite. I'm not. I collaborate, yes, and you know why. I'm mayor of this town. My duty to defend it. Where can they find this fellow, Martin? Hmm? What? Oh, um, he's on the night shift tonight. He should be at the switch tower at 9 o'clock. Hello? Operator? I want to speak to Major Von Keller. At the time, of course, I was unaware of George Lambert's visit with Mayor Manville, so I was quite startled when the next morning the guards opened my cell and told me to go home. As I stood knocking at our front door, I felt important and powerful. For one foolish moment, I convinced myself that I was too valuable to the Nazis to keep in jail. Oh, my boy. My boy. Morning, mother. Oh, my poor boy. Just look at you. What's the matter? I'm just fine. I hadn't slept for three nights thinking of you in that horrible prison. Very nice, mother. Professor Sorrell was there, and we talked all the time. When the German soldiers tried to listen, we talked in Latin. Just like a man. Talk, 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 and let the women worry. Mother, I'm worried, too, about Professor Sorrell. They didn't release him. I was the only one they let go. Why did they let me go, Mother? Oh, they aren't fools. They know you're needed at the school. Professor Sorrell is needed at the school more than I am. Now, now, don't ask questions. They let him out. Hurry now, my darling. Wash up. Oh, first I must go and tell Louise. Paul and Louise. No, 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 no. Mother, I must tell her that I'm free. It'll make her very happy. No, 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 Albert, no. No, don't leave me. Mother. I don't feel well, and... You can't go out on the street looking the way you do. Now, Mother, I've just come through the street, and Paul and Louise live right next door. I'll be back in a minute. Oh, Albert, Albert! Oh. Morning, Louise. You see, I'm free. They had to let me go. Yes. I see. Well, where's Paul? You card. Hmm? You traitor. Louise. You ask me where Paul is? Paul is dead. They shot him. That's why you're free. Paul is dead? Oh, we knew you were weak, but I told Paul you'd never tell. I told him we could trust you. How much do they pay you, or do they only give you your life back? Louise! Oh, don't try to lie. You're the only one who knew. Now get out! Albert, uh, aren't you going to eat? Paul's dead. She thinks I'm formed on him. She despises me. She's mixed up in it, too, just like that brother was. He was to blame for putting you in prison. Paul is dead. And you're free, thank God. I've got to go back to her. I've got to talk. No, 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 Albert. You might as well know now. I'm the one who told. Told? Told what? Well, I saw him sneak home the day that bomb was thrown. And I saw him climb in the window the night you left me alone for that girl. Did you, my own mother, tell that to the Germans? Oh, George Lambert. George Lambert? Yes, yes, George is your friend, Albert. George Lambert! Albert! Albert, where are you going? Let go of me, let go! Oh! Good morning, Lambert. 
Now, what's the matter with you? You look as though you have indigestion, or didn't you sleep well last night? Look out of the window. There, by the shed. That's where he fell. They, they shot him there. Now, sit down, my friend, and don't worry. His sister will never know. We keep our secrets. She broke our engagement days ago. Now, she'll be lonely. She'll make up with you. Have you released all the hostages? By no means. But you promised them. Only that fool schoolmaster, Laurie, one for one. Fair trade, good business. Well, Martin's funeral is tomorrow, Lambert. Yes, I know. Many people will be afraid to attend. But you will go. She will admire you for risking my displeasure. And when you take her home, she'll want to talk. She knows who the accomplices were. And you know the way to my office. Do you think I'd do that? I'm sure you will, Lambert. You're too intelligent not to. Good morning, my friend. Good day, Major Van Keller. Oh, Mr. Lambert. Yes? Oh, here, sir. Another fine pigeon, sir. We caught it in the trap in the loft. And perhaps you'd like to have it for your dinner, sir? Give it to me. Yes. You, you can go now. Go to lunch and close the door. Yes, sir. A pigeon for my dinner. No. No. Somewhere out there is freedom for you, little bird. How, how soft you are. Lambert, what have you done? Mr. Lambert, the gun. Mr. Lambert, I heard the shot. Mr. Lambert, you, you, you shot him. No, 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 I just came. I came to see him as I opened the door. There was a shot and I found him with his gun. Murder. You killed him. Murder. We pause now for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. After a brief intermission, we'll hear Charles Lawton and Marino Sullivan in Act Three of This Land is Mine. Now, here's Bill, home on furlough. Gotta pinch myself, honey. Am I really having dinner with you tonight instead of 500 other guys? <laughs> well, we go to celebrate. Well, gosh, honey, I'd just like to stay home. That cooking of yours is tops. Anything you say, soldier. Tell you what, we'll do it with all the trimmings. Silver candlesticks, our best china. And we won't worry now how many dishes we'll have to wash. Say, maybe we better go out after all. Can't let you get dishpan hands while I'm home. I like that. Anything wrong with my hands right now? Not a thing, baby. But I guess you haven't been washing many dishes lately. Every single night. I don't get it. You used to talk a lot about how rough it made your hands. No, but it's all different now. Something new? Well, you know how I park in the bathroom luxing stockings and undies every night. Now I'm using Lux for dishes, too. That's new for me. So what does it do? So I don't get horrid dishpan hands anymore. No kidding. Uh-huh. They got all soft and smooth again in no time. And that's all I did. Change to Lux. Smart girl, my wife. Yes, it's true. 
smart wives are changing from strong soaps to Lux Flakes for dishes. See for yourself how easy it is to change dishpan hands to Lux hands. Lux is thrifty, too. It goes further, actually does up to twice as many dishes as any of ten other leading soaps tested. Change to Lux Flakes for your dishes. Now the curtain rises on the third act of This Land is Mine, starring Charles Lawton and Maureen O'Sullivan, with Edgar Barrier. From the diary of Albert Laurie, I'd been found in the office with a gun in my hand and on the floor, dead was George Lambert. I was charged with murder. The court was jammed. Louise was there, dressed in black in memory of Paul, her dead brother, for whose death she understandably held me responsible. Now I was being tried for killing the man to whom she was once engaged. The prosecution will continue, please. Gentlemen of the jury... The murder of George Lambert by Albert Laurie has been proved by the witnesses who found him in the office, by the gun he held, and by one of the oldest motives in criminal history, jealousy. You may find it preposterous to believe that a man of Albert Laurie's age, of such a weak and timid character, could become so enamored of a young woman as to commit murder to dispose of a rival. But Laurie was in love with Louise Martin, the fiancée of the man he murdered. Prosecution rests, Your Honor. Mr. Laurie? Yes, Your Honor. This court deeply regrets your continued refusal to be defended by counsel. You may speak now, but be clear and to the point. Thank you, Your Honor. All I wish to say, I've written down. The paper's here in my pocket. I'm sorry. I'm sure I had the paper. That's all I've been doing in my cell, writing it all down. Well, take it out and read it. It seems that's impossible, Your Honor. My pocket. There's a hole in it. The paper must have dropped <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best, however, if you'll excuse me for speaking badly. I've never been able to speak in public. My only defense is the truth. Well, the truth is that I wanted to kill George Lambert. But I don't think I could have. You see, I'm too weak. I'm a coward. Everybody knows that, even the prosecutor. Oh, I'm not a coward inside my heart. I have brave dreams. I'm not afraid inside of me to commit murder. But when I face realities, I'm lost. I'm a coward. <laughs> you know, it's strange, but we're... Two people, all of us, inside and outside. George Lambert was two men. He, too, couldn't face reality. But he was different from me. Lambert was strong outside and weak inside. Inside, he was a coward. And when this honest coward had to face what the other George, the brave George, had done, he couldn't stand it. So he killed himself. In a way, of course, I am responsible for his death through my mother's love for me. <laughs> You know, the prosecutor saw fit to mention the name of Miss Martin. I'm sorry about that. But as long as he has singled you out, Louise, perhaps you'll not think too harshly of me if I speak directly to you. Louise, you thought I informed on Paul. It was my mother. To save me, she told George Lambert. Lambert went to the mayor. 
And he, in turn, went to Major Von Keller, and Paul was killed. I object. The accused has no right to seize on this occasion to slander Mayor Mandel. Your Honor, if I'm stopped now, how can anyone here believe that our civil courts are dealing out justice, as the official newspaper insists? Laurie, I'm sorry, but... Proceed, Laurie. George Lambert and Mayor Mandel were quite alike. They took the side of the powerful men. They found they got on better that way. They learned even to admire them. Your Honor, it's intolerable that the accused should exploit this courtroom to voice dangerous political opinions. Maybe these things are political, sir, but they're the basis of my defense. This is the court of justice, Your Honor. Can the prisoner be permitted to slander the name of his victim? Is this a free court, Your Honor? If the accused insists upon this kind of defense, I request the permission to call in a new witness. What new witness? Mayor Henry Manville. Has the accused any objection? No, not at all, sir. Very well. This session stands adjourned until 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. The guards found the speech which I had written and lost. It was brought to my cell that evening by a very important man, Major Von Keller. Well, Laurie, from all accounts, you did very well in court today without this speech. Uh, thank you, sir, but I've decided not to use it. Laurie, I was mistaken about you. You're a man of real courage. I was a fool not to realize it sooner. Oh, no. No, I'm not. Cigarette? Hmm? Oh, yes. It's my second one. And the light. Thank you. <coughs> you made a great mistake in court today, Laurie. You called yourself a coward, but you quickly disproved it by what you later said. Now they know you killed Lambert. But I didn't. <laughs> and I believe you. It all makes so much sense. I remember now how strangely Lambert looked when I left him that morning. And the clerk was just coming in with a pigeon. Well, the plan of action becomes suddenly most clear. Lambert was despondent because of losing Miss Martin. The police will shortly discover a suicide note. And we can handle the jury and you'll be acquitted. Oh. Yes. There will be no need for you to say another word in court. Did they find a suicide note? <laughs> You are a poet, Laurie, a poet. I don't understand why you're trying to save my life. I like you. Uh, and you don't want me to say anything more in court. It's a peculiar situation, Laurie. We Germans could readily take over the courts, but we prefer to collaborate, to give freedom to the nations we have defeated. But freedom must be limited by the necessities of war. We ask you to speak no more. A very small sacrifice, you will agree when we are still sacrificing our lives for the future happiness of the world. You mean I was right in what I said about Lambert and the mayor? <laughs> right, of course you are right. The honest Lamberts, the dishonest Manvilles, we find them in every country we invade. They are waiting for us in England. They will be waiting for us also in America. You believe that, Major? It is a certainty. What is England but a lot of old ladies wearing their grandfather's leather breeches? <laughs> And America? Very spectacular, very childish. <laughs> a charming cocktail of the Irish and the Jews. <laughs> I see. Uh, 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 could I have another light for my cigarette? Uh, certainly. <coughs> Laurie, I'm glad you've decided to live and to be a free man. You have a great duty. The regeneration of youth. Make them ready for the world of tomorrow, Laurie. Believe me, it will be a fine world. <coughs> All night, I sat in my cell and pondered over what Von Keller had said. At dawn, 
I was sitting with my head in my hands when I heard marching footsteps in the prison yard. I looked out through the iron bars. The soldiers were leading eight men and two women against a wall. Among them was Professor Sorrell. I screamed to him. I shouted his name. At last, he glanced up at me and he smiled. He waved his hand to me. I saw his lips move, but what he said, I don't know. Aim! Professor Sorrell! All right, Mr. Prosecutor, you may call your new witness. It pleases the court, it will not be necessary. New evidence has been found. What new evidence? Just found, Your Honor. This note in the handwriting of the late George Lambert, it saves us from a serious miscarriage of justice because it clearly indicates that Lambert intended to commit suicide. Let me have that note. Certainly, Your Honor. Excuse me, sir, that note's a forgery. I know all about it. Major von Keller told me last night. Quiet, you fool. Do you realize what you're saying, Laurie? It's out of his mind, Your Honor. The man's insane. No, I'm not insane, Your Honor. The prosecutor wrote that note himself. I think he's trying to save my life. Go on. I learned last night that I'm a very lucky man. That this is the only place left in my country where a man can still speak out. Your Honor, I request that the court will be clear. The prosecutor's afraid. He wants to deprive me of my last chance to be heard. I know I'm a condemned man. I know I must die. May I speak, Your Honor? What are you afraid to? Keep talking, Mr. Lorry. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Now, last night I had a moment of weakness. Yes, I wanted to live. I had very good reasons for wanting to live. Major von Keller told me beautiful things about the future of this world they're building. And I almost believed him. But this morning... I looked out through bars and I saw his beautiful new order at work. Eight men and two women were shot because they still believed in liberty. Among them was Professor Sorrell. He said something to me I couldn't hear, but I think he was telling me what to do. I knew then that I had to die. And the strange thing is, it made me happy. Those ten people died because of Paul Martin. But they didn't blame Paul. They were proud of him. Paul was a soldier without glory but in a wonderful cause. I see now that sabotage is the only weapon left to a defeated people. We must stop saying that sabotage is wrong, that it doesn't pay. It does pay. It makes us suffer, starve, and die. But though it increases our misery, it will shorten our slavery. That's a hard choice, I know. But even at this moment, more German troops are coming to this town because of what Paul Martin did. And the more troops they have to leave here, the less there are on the fighting fronts. But first, first we have to fight ourselves. Yes, any occupation in any land is only possible because the people have been corrupt. And I accuse myself first. For my own comfort and security, I made no protest against the mutilation of truth in our school books. My mother got me extra food and milk. Now, in this courtroom now, are you, you merchants of this town, you've given us the black market. Business is better than ever. 
Money's plentiful. Money that the Germans print themselves, and with it, you are buying up the town. I don't blame you for wanting to become rich, but you should blame yourselves for making the occupation possible. Because you cannot do these things without playing straight into the hands of the Germans. That's why I know the jury must condemn me to die. Not because I killed George Lambert, which I didn't. But because I've tried to tell the truth. And the truth cannot be allowed to exist under the occupation. Officially, you'll find me guilty of murder. But don't worry. Even if you were to acquit me, the enemy would take me and put me against that same stone wall. And you too. They can find any reason to take hostages. Oh, there, uh, there is one final charge I must answer to. And I'm very guilty. Yesterday, I was ashamed when the prosecutor accused me of loving Louise Martin. I've always loved her secretly. But now, I'm not ashamed. I'm proud. <laughs> and I feel quite young. No doubt it's because I'm going to die. You know, it's a very strange thing. Last night, Major von Keller told me I wasn't a coward. I think maybe he was right. And I'm not the only one. This town is full of courage. I'm proud of it. I'm proud to be born and die here. Thank you, Your Honor. Gentlemen of the jury, you'll retire and arrive at a just verdict. <laughs> we have already agreed upon the verdict, Your Honor. We find the accused not guilty. <laughs> She wept for me, Louise. She kissed me. And with my mother, we walked home together. They walked on the streets, and I walked on the stars. Well, it's morning again, and I'm ready to leave for school. This undoubtedly is the last entry I shall ever write in my diary. They're certain to come for me soon. Good morning, young men. Would you please sit down? Boys, I don't know how much time I have, but if this is to be a short lesson, I think I've found the best book. It was given to me by Professor Sorrell. Maybe it'll be burned soon. But if it remains in your memories, it can't be destroyed. It was written in a night of enthusiasm 150 years ago, and it's called A Declaration of the Rights of Man. Article 1. All men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Article 2. The purpose of all political parties is the safeguarding of the natural and inalienable rights of man. These rights are liberty, property security, and resistance to tyranny. Article 3. The principle of all governments resides... Mm, yes. How about that? You're uh, under arrest. Uh, one moment, gentlemen, please. Um, the principle of all government resides in the nation itself. No group, no individual can exercise any authority that does not expressly 
emanate from the people. I said you will come with us. Well, I must go now, boys. Goodbye. Help us. Help us. Albert, my dear. Please. Please. Thank you, my darling. Now, please, don't cry. Would you tell me, Mother, and remember that I am happy? I am completely happy. Let go, madam. Oh, no. Let him go. Albert. Albert. Goodbye, citizens. Down, boy. Article 4. Liberty consists in freedom to do all that does not harm others. Article 5. The law has the right to forbid only those things which are harmful to society. Article 6. The law is the expression of the will of the people. All citizens have the right to assist. Our stars return for their curtain calls in just a moment. Now, here's Libby Collins with an interesting news item she found the other day. Well, it seems that some wax landing in England nearly created an international incident by wearing sheer hosiery. Of course, it was rayon, but it was so good-looking that the clothes-ration British women thought the American girls were wearing silk stockings. Well, Libby, I don't blame them. I can't tell the difference. They all look pretty good to me. <laughs> Yes, today's rayons are sheer-looking and flattering as many pre-war silk stockings. And, of course, they need the same care you gave silk. Gentle luck care after every wearing. Takes practically no time at all. And if you squeeze stockings in the same suds you've used for undies, you don't waste a bit of your precious Lux flakes. Luxing saves elasticity, so stockings give under strain instead of breaking easily into runs. In fact, actual strain tests proved Lux cuts down runs in rayons. Helps you get twice the wear from every pair. Luxed stockings lasted twice as long as stockings rubbed with cake soap or washed with a strong soap. And don't forget to let rayons dry thoroughly, 24 to 48 hours. Now, here's Mr. DeMille with our stars, Mr. DeMille in Little Rock, Arkansas, and our stars on the stage of the Lux Radio Theater in Hollywood. If you've all enjoyed tonight's play as much as I have, you want to join me and... Calling Charles Lawton and Maureen O'Sullivan back to the footlights for a curtain call. Thank you, C.B. This has been rather a gala occasion for me. An anniversary of some kind, Charles? No, I've just had my hair cut. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you honor us. C.B., if you'd gone without a haircut for six months, you'd appreciate it. Or on second thoughts, if my memory serves me correctly, maybe you wouldn't notice. Huh? <laughs> Fortunately, my hair hasn't mattered in 40 years. <laughs> I suppose your long coiffure was for a picture, Charles. Yes, for the Canterville ghost of MGM, Marie. Oh. I play the ghost. I slip through keyholes and all that sort of thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you're the most substantial ghost I ever met, Charles. <laughs> By the way, CB, this is the first play I've ever acted in where the producer was a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> We'll have to take your word for it that you really are in Arkansas. I see, when do you open the story of Dr. Wassell? Wednesday, Charles. Uh, and it'll be a double premiere in two theaters. Dr. Wassell is here in Little Rock with me, and his hometown has made him a present of the city. It's a real hero's homecoming. Our very best wishes for the premiere, Mr. DeMille. Will you be back here next week? 
Yes, and in time for rehearsals, Maureen. Oh. Next Monday night, our play is the universal comedy success, Appointment for Love. And our stars will be Paul Lucas and Olivia de Havilland. <laughs> this, this is the gay love story of a famous playwright and a woman doctor who takes the scientific approach to romance. With Paul Lucas, the Academy Award winner, as the playwright, and Olivia de Havilland as the doctor, Appointment for Love is an appointment for a delightful evening. That's a date, C.B. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night from all of us out here in the audience. Our sponsors, the makers of Lux Flakes, join me in inviting you to be with us again next Monday night when the Lux Radio Theater presents Olivia de Havilland and Paul Lucas in Appointment for Love. This is Cecil B. DeMille saying good night to you from Arkansas. Here's a patriotic way to get more red ration points. Just save used fats and turn them into your butcher regularly. He'll give you two red points for every pound. Keep a tin can near your sink for table scraps containing fat. Melt them down once a week. This fat, plus drippings and the grease from the broiler or frying pan, is just what our government needs. Turn it in just as soon as your salvage tin is full. The fat you save will help give our fighting men the material and medicines they need. Always put fats in a tin can, any size, never a glass container. Heard in tonight's play were Regina Wallace as the mother, Dennis Green as George, Ralph Lewis as Paul, Cliff Clark as Sorrell, Douglas Wood as the mayor, and John McIntyre, Charles Seal, Norman Field, Tyler McVeigh, Howard McNear, and Billy Roy. This program is broadcast to our fighting forces overseas through cooperation with the Armed Forces Radio Service. Our music was directed by Louis Silver. Three great shows, same time, same station. Listen tomorrow night at this time for George Burns and Gracie Allen and their guest star, Frank Morgan. Listen Wednesday night for Frank Sinatra singing Suddenly It's Spring. Adolf Manju is to be Frank's guest. This time, Lux Time. Every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday for the tops in entertainment. This is your announcer, John M. Kennedy, reminding you to tune in again next Monday night to hear Paul Lucas and Olivia de Havilland in Appointment for Love. This land is mine, as it appeared on the Lux Radio Theater in the wartime spring of 1944. It brings us to the end of the big broadcast tonight. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend... Each Sunday with you As friend of friend I'm sorry it's true I'm telling you Just how I feel I hope you feel That way too Let's make a date For next Sunday night 
I'm here to stay Twill be my delight To sing again Bring again The things you want me to I love to spend Each Sunday with you 